Fat Moose Comics is New Jersey's best and oldest comic book store. Established in 1982 and under new ownership since 2020, Moose sells a wide selection of new and old comics from every publisher, action figures, graphic novels, posters, statues, and more. If you're looking for something and they don't have it, they can probably get it for you. They know a guy. Visit Fat Moose in Whippany, New Jersey the next time you're in the Garden State. And be sure to reach out via the Fat Moose Comics Facebook page. Filmmakers and movie fans alike should be sure to attend these film festivals. Brightside Tavern in Jersey City, Hang On to Your Shorts in Asbury Park, Point Lookout on Long Island, and In the Cut in Bloomfield, New Jersey. On a personal note, my short film, By Spoon, The J. Mizell Story, played at these fests, so I know firsthand what fun and well-run events they are. Submission information for filmmakers, as well as details about the festivals, can be found at filmfreeway.com. Follow the festivals on social media for news about events, discounts, tickets, and more. Also, listen to the Hang On To Your Shorts and Cullen On Film podcasts, available via a shared universe network. Since the beginning of this podcast, almost 100 episodes ago, I have been mining my 30-year Superman fandom, starting with that tattered red cape, within the larger context of the character's rich 85-year mythology, examining, discovering, and reconsidering the creative visions that have shaped the last son of Krypton. Now, our milestone 100th episode beckons, and the journey continues. Welcome to Digging for Kryptonite, a Superman fan journey. I'm your host, Anthony Desiato. Joining me to discuss All-Star Superman by Grant Morrison and Frank Whiteley is returning guest, Mike San Gregorio. Welcome back. Uh, thank you. Thank you for having me. You were here for our last episode of 2021, and you're here again at the top of 2023. It's not like we had a falling out or anything last year, but I, I gave you a little bit of a break because you and your wife welcomed your second child last year. So officially on the show, congratulations. We were talking off mic about what it's like having two kids. Uh, I only have the one, of course, but I know I know how hectic just one can be. So I figured give you a little bit of a breather while you guys acclimated to your growing family. But I'm happy to have you back now. Uh, thank you. Yeah, I, I am uh, very excited to be back. This is uh, always a good reason to reread something I love with this discussion in mind. So this was definitely something I was looking forward to. I, I couldn't believe you hadn't done All-Star because I feel like most – People would say, well, it's one of, if not the best Superman story of all time. So I was very excited when uh, you mentioned you hadn't done it with someone else. We, it's come up here and there. We've talked about it a little bit in other episodes, but this is the first time I've dedicated an episode to it. The, our last episode was devoted to Whatever Happened to the Man of Tomorrow, another, another classic story that you might have expected a full-on episode about earlier. But this, as I always say, this is a journey and we do things a little bit differently and it's kind of, it, it's about this path we've been on and this was the right time after everything that we've read and watched and talked about, like this was the time to do it. Now, I got to say to the audience, I know we missed an episode last week. This was supposed to go up a week ago, but we couldn't record it. I was sick and I lost my voice. You know, there are a lot of things that you can sort of muscle through, uh, but when it comes to a podcast, if you can't speak, you, you, you just won't, you won't, <laughs> you can't get anywhere. So I want to thank the audience. Thank you for your patience and for your well wishes. A lot of people reached out. Now, you know, Mike, we've known each other personally for years, so you know this. And, and I think at this point, the audience knows it killed me, killed me to miss an episode. It's, it's a point of pride that episodes come out when they're supposed to come out. And I say we're on a weekly release schedule and, and 
episodes come out on that schedule, but it really couldn't be helped. Uh, but one thing that softened the blow, one is that I've got so many podcast series so that there's always something for people to listen to. But the other one was that I knew this was going to be a, I knew this was going to be a great one. Cause again, when it comes to Morrison and we've talked about this before, you're, you know, you and Ralph Puma, you guys are always the two I, I gravitate toward. And you guys always come in with such, such insight and, and passion for Morrison and, and, and their stories. So, uh, I, I knew we were in great hands with you as, as co-pilot for this and, I've had, going back to this idea of a journey, a bit of a journey with All-Star Superman. I got a lot to say, a lot to share, and I just know this is going to be a great discussion. So that kind of got me through uh, sort of my, 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 my latest cold and the loss of my voice. But I got to tell you, and then I'll, I'll move past this, but I just have to say that <laughs> I'm, you know, I, I'm not prone to um, irrational worry or anything like that. I I, I tend to stay pretty grounded and pretty rational. That's, uh, you know, uh, at least, in, you know, for the most part. And I knew I was like, I'll, I'll get my voice back. I, I think it was either the cold or the decongestant that I took that like totally dried me out or something like that. But anyway, this has only happened to me like once before years ago and not to this extent. So rationally, I was like, okay, I know I'll get my voice back. But there was that little irrational part of me that was just like, you're never going to talk again. Your, the podcasts are over, and 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 so I feel like I've been born again. I'm so happy to be here to be talking and to be talking about Superman. We're almost a hundred episodes in, and I honestly can wow. say that I'm as excited now, maybe even more excited than I was at the beginning. Because the more we mine, the deeper we get. There's so much to talk about. The hardest part about this podcast is that there's so much I want to cover. And, you know, I like my big multi-episode events that we do. But, you know, you plan a few of those and most of the year is spoken for. So, like, there's so much stuff that's on that long-term to-do list. So I love doing this. I hated missing a week. I'm happy to be back. And I'm happy to be talking about All-Star Superman with you. I uh, think it's hilarious that you also waited to do Whatever Happened to the Man of Tomorrow because I feel like you cannot talk about Grant Morrison without talking about Alan Moore and despite how much the two creators try to have nothing to do with each other, they're always linked in the public consciousness. So I'm very excited that someone listening to this could have just listened to that episode because I just feel like it's inevitable. Yeah, very true. And one thing that I've had in the back of my mind with these episodes, well, one of them is just the idea of, of a final Superman story and what what sort of ending does Superman deserve? Do we deserve? What What is the, the the fitting finale for the Man of Steel? So that's one thing that I've been kicking around. But more specifically, when it comes to Moore's Whatever Happened to the Man of Tomorrow, and we talked about this in the last episode, and, and Morrison's All-Star Superman, when read in conjunction with DC One Million, which we'll, we'll talk about, both stories end with a wink. And I thought that was uh, sort of uh, an interesting commonality between them. So we'll, you know, we'll, we'll get into all of that. But I don't know how much setup people really need for All Star Superman. This is a modern classic. It was published between 2005 and 2008. Twelve issues, written by Grant Morrison, drawn by Frank Whiteley, and uh, I believe inked and colored by by Jamie Grant. And I'd be remiss if I didn't mention on the editorial side, it was edited by Bob Shrek, but the assistant editor on this was our very own Brandon Montclair, who we've mentioned on the show Lovely. before, a good friend of ours, 
one of the former owners of Alternate Realities, the comic book shop where we hung out for many years. And I actually reached out to Brandon and he he shared some insight with me, uh, not even about the behind the scenes stuff like that, but just about the story itself that gave me a new perspective on this story. And I'm excited to share it. And again, to kind of talk about this this little bit of a journey that I've had with with All-Star Superman over the years. Just to be clear, this was never this was never a story that I hated or disliked or anything like that. But I, I've been, you know, I've read this story maybe half a dozen times, I would say, in the years since it since it came out. I read it as it was coming out, and then I read it in collected edition a few times after that. And while while I never disliked it, it never really resonated with me to the extent that it it did for you and for so many fans. And it was always kind of tough as a Superman fan, you know, to to have the story that's so revered by Superman fans and non-Superman fans alike and to feel like a little bit a little bit left out like it just didn't do for me what it seemed to do for so many people. And I now can better explain why and why that's changed. So, like I said, it, it's been an interesting process kind of working with this story over the years. And um, I had had a little bit of an evolution even prior to talking to Brandon. And then I, I talked to Brandon and then uh, I read the story yet again. And a lot of things really kind of clicked into place. I'm going to toss it to you in one second. The last thing I want to say, I guess, by, by way of setup is I have had a number of people reach out to me, like publicly or privately, to say that you know, they've, I guess they've had some mixed reactions to All-Star Superman as well. And going back to our last episode with Whatever Happened to the Man of Tomorrow, there were there were a number of people, you know, we talked in the episode, my guest was Ed Gross, who's the Superman podcaster and historian, and, and he has a new book that's coming out, you know, big Superman fan. He had never read Whatever Happened to the Man of Tomorrow, but I had a bunch of people reach out to, to say that they too had not read it or, you know, had only read about it and, and you know, that what they had read about it was sort of more surface level. And so they enjoyed the discussion because we really got deeper into it. So again, as I always say, people come at this stuff from different, different perspectives, different angles, and, and it's, it's all good. It's all valid. So let me toss it to you. What, what has your, your experience, your history been with, with All-Star Superman? And how, if at all, has your, have your feelings toward it changed over the years? Uh, I bought both All-Star Superman and All-Star Batman and Robin when they came out uh, back in, in the mid-2000s because they, they were event comics. Like, they were a very big deal. It was a huge deal that these creators were on these books. And this is something that, uh, as far as I could tell, everyone was reading and you wanted to be up to date on it. Um, I read the entire thing when it was coming out. I had no idea what was going on. <laughs> and I have reread it numerous times since then. But each time I get a little bit better because I feel like I can see the full picture. Um, I'm not surprised that a lot of people haven't read it, and I think that's because the best way to describe All-Star Superman is it's a Superman comic made for people who don't necessarily read Superman comics. And what I mean by that is, you know, you and I grew up in the S.H.I.E.L.D. era, right? Like, we we could cite some pretty deep references, and, and we all have our favorite uh, long-term runs. This isn't that. 
right? Like the second that this thing was collected, you could just hand it to people. Like I remember going to the bookstore when that was still a thing people did. This was always in print. Like you could get Watchmen and Dark Knight Returns and this thing, and you could just read it. The characters in here, for the most part, are from other medium. You know them. You, you recognize them. You you look at this. You see Perry White. You don't need to know that. He smoked cigars, and he had cancer that one time, and all this other minutiae that you and I know because we're Wednesday Warriors. Um, and I think that's part of the appeal, and I think that's part of the reasons that it succeeded. Um, but it's not an easy work. Uh, you know, Grant Morrison's been very open about the fact that they love Superman, uh, not just as a character to write, but as, a, as an idea. Like, they always say Superman is a response to the uh, atom bomb. We created this terrible thing that's probably going to destroy us one day. But we also created this other thing that says, hey, you can be the best version of yourself and you can help your fellow man no matter what happens. Um, and while that might sound a little ridiculous to say out loud, it, it's still uh, a way of looking at how the story was written. And a lot of that is in here. It's basically saying you can do good things. You just have to want to do them um, and, you know, have, have the resources available, but it's, it's not an easy work. It's definitely not one I'll just pick up uh, and read. And then you mentioned 1 million and you have to thread that both before this story and after this story (laughs) and kind of see the whole thing uh, that was written many years apart. Um, But one thing I will say over the years is that I think it's beautiful. And not just in the sense that, excuse me, uh, not just in the sense that the art is a thing of beauty, like Frank quietly really took his time and and, and drafted some very uh, iconic visions, but also the story as a whole, uh, particularly as it pertains to Luthor, it's it's a beautiful story and it's an important one. And and I'm happy you mentioned that it's an ending story because I do view it that way. I I view All-Star Superman the way uh, The Dark Knight Returns by Frank Miller is viewed for Batman people like this is this is the end this is the end of all the great adventures you know he defeats the tyrant's son he fixes our son he you know finds the best in the worst of humanity and then he moves on and he says well now it's your turn what are you guys going to do without me um so i think that's a that's a great way of describing it but yeah it's it's not an easy work to get through it it really does require a lot of work and it rewards that if you do it but I'm never surprised when I meet someone and they're like, oh, I never got around to reading that. I tell them they should, but I, I also understand why they haven't. It's so interesting to hear you say it's not an easy work because one of the things that I was going to say to you, and I will say it, is that we, you and I have had numerous conversations about Morrison's work, some on, on podcasts, and we've talked about how Morrison can be a challenging writer with these big ideas we did an episode or a couple episodes of my comic shop book club about Morrison's new X-Men run. And I, the, the, the sort of the representative example that I, that I kept going back to was uh, liquid time. And, and I, I talked to you about how, you know, in the past, something like that would have tripped me up. It would have been like, what the hell is liquid time? But I, I got past that and I was just like, all right, you just got to roll with it. And it allowed me to enjoy the work more. But I was going to say with this, I feel like this is one of Morrison's m- more accessible works. I do agree that repeated readings do reward you for sure. But I don't, or I guess I'll just speak more from my own experience. What challenged me here wasn't so much what the hell is Morrison talking about? What is going on here? Poor Ralph Puma. He came on the show, bless his heart, and explained Superman Beyond to me uh, and did a fantastic job. And I still... I don't know that I could really tell you exactly what that was all about, but it was a great episode and a great discussion. Can I, can I discussion. stop you right there? 
Superman Beyond is is the best Superman story ever written. Oh. I, I, I I will go on record as saying those two issues uh, by Grant Morrison and Doug Monk published as part of um, as part of the Final Crisis crossover. I think about them every day. Uh, there are scenes in there that perfectly encapsulate uh, everything there is to love about that that character. Um, and 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 Ralph is the absolute best person to sell someone on that. So I'm 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 very happy that you feel that way. But that that story is for me. That is that is top shelf a number one Superman Beyond. You think about it every day. There is a scene in that comic that I have cited to creator and layman alike where uh, Captain Adam takes Superman and he takes Ultraman, uh, his polar opposite, and he says, selfless act meet hate crime. And then he squishes them together. And for those who don't know, this version of Captain Adam uh, is basically Dr. Manhattan from Watchmen. So he's omnipotent, for lack of a better term. Uh, So he combines them. And when he combines them together, he he creates a fictional character that has to exist in 3D space. So when you turn the page, you then have to put on 3D glasses. And the character has elevated themselves into this higher realm so that they can fight an evil version of the monitor. And we've discussed this before, but in my mind, the monitor is the reader, (laughs) the person who's getting enjoyment out of this whole thing. I just love the idea that you have to merge opposites together to create a version of a fictional character that can kind of fight against the reader who's enjoying watching in that story. It's, it's Lois being hurt. Um, And I love this idea of, of merging opposites together because uh, in Morrison's the invisibles, which I'm a big fan of that's, that's the big theme is, you know, you don't have an enemy. You have a friend you haven't met yet. And while that might seem uh, counterintuitive when that person's trying to kill you, it's really the only thing that matters. It's not a new idea. Religion in the world's got some version of that idea, but I feel like it's really well encapsulated there where Superman can't save the day alone. He needs this polar opposite and Superman is, is willing and a big enough concept to do that. The other thing I love about that book is you were talking about endings before that has my favorite ending uh, where the very last page of Superman beyond two is uh, you see Superman's headstone and it's supposed to be like an, like an ill portent, like, Oh, he is going to die and he's not going to survive against dark side. But when you see the headstone, it says to be continued. And the idea being that Superman as you know, the greatest fictional character is always going to continue because he's so strong as a story. We're always going to tell some version of him, you know, whether it's the social justice crusader of the golden age or, you know, big daddy of the silver age or the modern version or John Kent or Chris Reeve or whatever it is, he's too good a story not to tell. And I love the idea that there is no final act. There'll always be a Superman for every generation. So I, I think beyond really does encapsulate that, but also I just, I just love that book. I do. I'm the only person I know who feels that way, but I love that book. Boy, I walked right into that one. (laughs) (laughs) No, I appreciate you sharing that. And look, my perspective on a lot of things has changed. You came up in the last episode because my perspective on the fate of the Clark Kent of Smallville in the television crisis event changed. It changed. And I talked about how you made great arguments the first time we, when we did that episode a couple of years ago about how I hated it and you brought up some great points. It took me a long time, but I've, I've really come around on it. So Superman Beyond may very well be one of those things where we do an episode down the line and I'm like, hey, oh, I totally get it now. But right now, at least, I do still look at that as a bit more 
inscrutable where I look at All-Star Superman and I, I wouldn't put it in the same category, but I, I think they're, again, certainly spending the time with it and, and reading it a few times and, and really understanding what what Morrison was setting out to do. Uh, again, my perspective has has shifted a lot. I think that, and and again, I, I, I don't know that people need much by way of plot setup for this, but essentially it tells the story of Superman's final days. Uh, he is dying of solar radiation poisoning uh, as a result of a situation orchestrated by Lex Luthor. And over the course of the 12 issues, he performs his uh, 12 legendary labors. And you know we'll, we'll talk about them. But what you end up getting is in each issue, really, a beautiful, and you used the word beautiful before, and I I would co-sign on that in terms of the art, and I want to talk about Quietly and, and the acting that Quietly does through the art. It's it's next level. But it's a it's a beautiful story. I teared up a number of times. And what you really get is this beautiful encapsulation, not of a specific era, but really of the entire Superman mythology uh, in, in each of these issues. You read that Jimmy Olsen issue, and I think you get you get a story that captures the you know, it wasn't 80 years at the time, but right, the decades long mythology uh, with that supporting character. And you get that with Lois and you get that with Candor, and you get that with Bizarro and you get it with Luther. And it's, it's, I think the reason why this is a story that is on every best of list is an evergreen book that you're always going to find at any good comic shop. And you're always going to find it at Barnes and Noble. And it's always going to be there. Now, I don't know that this is the first Superman story I would recommend to someone. Although to your point, I know you said it's a story made for people who like typically aren't Superman fans. And I'm not saying it's a bad first story, but, and, and look, I worked at a comic shop. I I know that at some point along the way, I write, someone came in and said, Oh, I want to get into Superman. I'm sure that was either at the top of the pile, even though I didn't, I wasn't the biggest fan, you know, back then, but it still was something that I would recommend. But I would still probably, it would depend on, on what the person was interested in, what their tastes were, things like that. But, uh, you know, kind of taking everything else out of the equation, I would still probably start someone off with a birthright or a for all seasons before I would throw this at them necessarily. But again, I don't think it's a bad first Superman story, but probably would not be the first one that I would recommend right off the bat to someone. The reason I, I said it was difficult, uh, it's difficult for me is, is because I don't, I don't find the version of Superman that exists in these 12 issues to be compelling as a protagonist. So I agree with you that each issue focuses on aspect of the larger mythology and it does it incredibly well. That Jimmy Olsen issue is, is perfect, really, truly perfect. Um, But this Superman is one who's at the height of his of his power, of his game, of his prestige. Um, and all of his conflict doesn't really come from the fact that he's he's dying because that actually makes him more powerful and more focused on what he wants to accomplish before the end arrives. Um, it's, it's about how he doubles down on the Clark identity to make sure that he remains incredibly relatable. Um, 
But in this, it's it's almost caricature-ish because in every time he's not wearing the glasses and the rumpled suit and all the the wonderful acting, to borrow your term, that quietly puts into it, uh, he's perfect. He's Superman at his absolute apex. He can do everything that we want him to do. And I always go back to the speech that the character of Bill in Kill Bill Volume 2 gives, which is, you know, when Superman is acting as Clark Kent, is this what he thinks of us? Is this what he is pretending to be he's acting the fool um because that's how he sees us that's not how i envision the character i i envision and you and i have discussed this before but i think of clark on the farm in smallville where it's like no he is a little bit of a klutz i don't care if he can fly to the moon under his own power um and the clark Kent who works at the at the daily planet is just a little bit more um played up for that version but i I don't think of him as this you know aloof god or like dr manhattan so that that uh that i always found very difficult to get around because i was basically like like why are you doing this like why are you why are you why are you wearing this suit and saving the dog and doing everything else well you should save the dog uh we 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 know that from man of steel you should definitely save the dog but but all the acting and the pretending and it's just like it's just like if this is how you think of us, why why are you doing this? But but again, that 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 that's a minor quibble uh, when you look at everything that's being done here, and we haven't even gotten to the plot. I mean, Kryptonian astronauts, the Bizarro world from the Underverse, uh, everything else that goes on here, the the Micro Superman army of Kandor. I mean, this these twelve issues are from beginning to end pure beautiful imagination, and that's that's really I think the the greatest tribute to the character that you could give. Totally. So that's a perfect segue. This is the journey that I've had with this story. So when I read it in the mid aughts, when it first came out, like I said, it didn't totally click with me. What I'm sure I said at the time was it wasn't quote unquote, my Superman. It wasn't the post-crisis triangle era Superman I had grown up with. And again, it wasn't that I, I, I had an intense dislike for it, but it just didn't really speak to me. A lot more recently, for this podcast, when Rich Roney and I, our mutual friend, when we covered a selection of Silver Age Superman stories, almost almost all of which were new to me, I pulled out All-Star Superman and I gave that a reread and things made more sense because now I had a background in Silver Age Superman, which introduced the fortress and candor and 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 a lot of these elements the mad sci- you know mad scientist lex that uh, or that was you know developed further during that time uh, that morrison uses here and at that point my understanding of all-star superman expanded but was still incomplete because at that point and I haven't gone back to that episode, but I, what I probably say in that episode is well morrison was writing the silver age superman or some version of that is probably what i said and I think that Morrison is certainly pulling from a lot of of those Silver Age ideas, and man, what a perfect what a perfect combo! Right? We always talk about Morrison and these big ideas, Liquid Time, uh, <laughs> a, a bibliobot that can recite Moby Dick at such high frequencies that it operates as a drill, and that's how Lex is able to burrow this tunnel under his prison cell in All Star. Like that, I, I feel like it's this perfect blend. So it's a, it's such a natural fit. These crazy silver age big ideas and and the morrison vibe but it is more than that uh like we talked about it it is really is such an encapsulation of of the entire of the entire mythology i look at the way quietly draws 
the character and in particular Clark. And I see, I see Tim sales Clark from for all seasons, you know, that sort of that big lumbering presence. Right. And, and in all-star Clark in the, in the Smallville, uh, you know, uh, time travel episode even talks about how there's not enough space in the city. So it's like, yes, there's an act that he's putting on, but also this idea that he's, he's a big guy and he's used to these <laughs> wide open spaces. So maybe when he knocks over that cup of pencils, it's, it's not, it's not totally for show, which I appreciated. Um, you know, we get, we get a version of doomsday in this, right. Which was a very modern pull. So it's, so again, it's, it's not just a silver age story. So my, my understanding continued to expand now. And bear with me here. I don't mean to monologue, but I, I've been sorting this out for a while and I got to get this out. So I've said this on a number of episodes and I don't want to belabor the point. So I'll, just, I'll get through it quickly. I've, my thesis of, you know, sort of different presentations of the character and what I see when I look at Silver Age Superman, when I look at the Donner movies, I see a God living among men who is a bit more removed from humanity. You know, one of the first Silver Age stories I read was the introduction of the Fortress of Solitude. And uh, in either that story or one of the early Silver Age uh, issues, you know, Superman has kind of a, a quiet night to himself. So he goes to the fortress to perform experiments. And I just remember thinking to myself, you know, the Superman I grew up with wouldn't, wouldn't do that. Like it just felt like there was this degree removed. Whereas I look at the Triangle Era Superman, the Superman of Lois and Clark, the New Adventures of Superman, the Superman of Smallville, the Superman of the Snyder movies, and and I see a man with the powers of a god, right? Not a god living among men. And that distinction is one that has allowed me to kind of enjoy all of those stories in their own way because I kind of, I, I kind of can account for what I perceive to be some of the differences. Now, what what do I make of All Star Superman? And this is where Brandon Montclair comes in. Because I looked at All-Star even up until my very last reading of it. <laughs> so my second to last reading just a couple of weeks ago, I was looking at this and I had a similar reaction as you. Still, this idea that he's, you know, Superman is apex, he's got everything together. I was like, okay, this is sort of the, you know, God living among men. And I'm, it's still a little bit hard for me to connect. What Brandon shared was, he said, the, and I'm paraphrasing here, not, not a direct quote, but he brought up the idea of how this story is so rooted in Midwestern values, not, not in a political sense, but just sort of in, again, in those values in terms of, uh, you know, the, the strength of, of the individual, but also helping a neighbor, um, sort of, uh, sort of the way Brandon framed it that really made everything click into place was, you know, this was not a, this was not a, a Clark or a Superman like crippled by neurosis or, uh, you know, wrestling with some of the things that we see in, in some of these other, other modern stories. This is a very, this is a Superman very clear of purpose, right? He's going to help anyone in need. He's going to help that neighbor, whether it's that suicidal girl on the roof of the building or a manned mission to the sun that's been sabotaged, right? It's all the same to him, right? It's helping the neighbor. Um, and so when he's, dealing with his impending mortality, there are, there are flashes where you do see it weighing on him, but it's not something that he's wallowing in. We don't see it. We don't see the struggle articulated maybe to the extent that, that we would have, or that we do in these other, in, in these other more modern stories. And so after Brandon said that, this idea that the brilliance of the story is how it's rooted in these Midwestern values and, um, he didn't use the word stoic, but I, but maybe that does kind of a, a apply here to an extent. I read it again, not looking at a god, but just looking at someone from the Midwest <laughs> and how how they would sort of 
go about the journey that this character does in the story. And, and I saw more of the man and less the God. And a lot more of it made sense for me. So I thank Brandon for what he shared. But it also, and I'm going to get your take on this, but the last thing I want to say is it really made me think about how my view of the character has so been shaped by what I grew up with. And it's like, of course, I'm not not breaking any news here. But I thought more specifically about what that means. And, And even going back to watching Lois and Clark as a little kid, this romantic comedy, essentially, right? As they're trying to navigate this, this workplace romance to 10 years of Smallville, where a show filled with angst and guilt and self-doubt to the Snyder movies, where he spends two full movies. not And I love that. And that's the thing. I love all of this. But, you know, he spends the movie not knowing, not knowing what his role in the world is going to be. And you see so much more, I think, of that internal struggle manifested. And I just, I recognize that that has shaped to me what I, I guess, kind of expect out of the character and what what does resonate with me. I, I like that iteration of the character. So when you give me something like All-Star, a Superman so clear of purpose that even his impending doom really doesn't slow him down all that much, it, it takes me a minute. It really does. And so, again, and it's not a positive or negative. It was just kind of a little bit eye-opening and just made me kind of realize how I've been so shaped by what I what I grew up with. So I toss it to you, man. What 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 is your reaction to this? Uh, I have never spoken to Brandon about All Star Superman, uh, but every time I talk to Brandon, it is a hoot. Uh, the way I, I I always enjoyed the story and I always appreciated it, um, but the, the way I connected with it most strongly was by watching the adaptation. So All Star Superman was made into a direct to streaming or. DVD, whatever it was at the time, movie, uh, and it was adapted by comic scribe Dwayne McDuffie, who never wrote a bad comic and uh, worked on the DCAU quite extensively before he unfortunately passed away. Um, I think his adaptation actually improves on the story in a couple of ways, uh, most notably, and spoilers for those of you who haven't watched the thing, um, it ends with Lex having a redemption moment. So the comic ends with Lex realizing uh, why Superman is the way he is uh, and kind of acknowledging that and kind of putting into perspective a lot of what Superman was doing as Clark throughout the course of the comic. You know, he keeps trying to tell Lois, Clark Kent and Superman are the same person. Lois doesn't believe him. Hilarity ensues. But he doesn't do that with Lex. And in fact, most of the scenes with Lex uh, are with Clark. And Lex, the smartest man who has ever lived, who ever will live, can't even consider the possibility that they are the same person. He, in fact, constantly compliments Clark for his humanity and his mundanity and all of these other things. And it's it's beautiful because it's like a myth. It's like the god has come down and they're trying to teach the human a lesson. And in the comic, they learn the lesson, but in the movie they turn it back on the hero. Uh, And what I mean by that is McDuffie added a scene in the movie where Lex, after he has lost his abilities and come back down to Earth and Superman has left, he is the one who gives the world the next version of Superman. He actually writes out the Superman genetic 
code, whatever the MacGuffin is, in a book, in a Superman, beautiful bound book that he hands to Dr. Quintum. And he says, this is it. This is my gift to the world. I saw what he saw. I finally understand why he does what he does, why he and I are so different. I stood in his shoes. And as a result, I want to share that with everyone. And when I saw that, I realized what should have been obvious to me, because he's always been one of my favorite characters, All-Star Superman is in many ways Lex Luthor's story. It opens with Lex committing the worst crime ever, not killing Superman, but deciding that the science he claims to worship uh, isn't worth it, and he sabotages man's first trip to the sun. He's Dr. Alexander Luthor. He should have been on that ship. He should have been doing all things and you watch a man who you know constantly talks about how great he is but isn't accomplishing anything other than the most petty acts go and ultimately save the world and he did it because he watched superman do it first and that really connected with me because i thought what greater act could superman have on earth than taking his most ardent you know this this guy who says you're bad. You're making us worse and showing him, no, I'm trying to teach everyone to be better to each other and be the best you can be. And if it works on Lex Luthor, then everyone's going to get the message. And if you read One Million, you see that everything works out. You know, a thousand years from now, we have the Legion of Superheroes. And however many years before we get to DC One Million, we've colonized the solar system and we've moved on and there's still a Superman and, and all this great stuff has happened. And uh, most people credit it to the idea that, you know, uh, you will believe a man can fly. Acme Comics is a locally owned and operated full service comic book store in Greensboro, North Carolina for people of all ages and walks of life. Now in its 40th year, this multiple time Eisner Award nominee features a significant contemporary and vintage back issue selection. As the Acme team uses their collective knowledge and resources to connect you with the best material. Mail order subscriptions to new releases are available, and all offerings are available anywhere via mail order. Follow Acme on social media and eBay, listen to the Acme cast on all podcast services, and visit acmecomics.com for much more. Oh Yeah Comics celebrates and promotes everything that is wonderful about comics, toys, artwork, and the joy they bring to people. Visit them in person at one of their three locations, Harrison, New York, which happens to be my local comic shop, Skokie, Illinois, or Muncie, Indiana. If you have children and have been looking for a family-friendly store, look no further. Join Aw Yeah for exciting events, including creator signings, how-tos, and more. Visit awyeahcomics.com and follow Aw Yeah on social media for more. Their name says exactly how they feel about it. Say it with me. Aw Yeah! Right on. I, I'm glad you brought up the animated adaptation. I, I did also rewatch that. And uh, I didn't dislike it. It was interesting to me for the most part, you know, you, you called out what is probably the most substantive uh, difference or specifically addition to the film. Uh, Most of what is presented is straight from the pages of the comic. Uh, the, The biggest alterations are the omissions and that that it, that broke my heart a little bit. I know they had limited real estate, and look, we've we've had this conversation. We'll can continue to have it about, especially those earlier entries in these DC animated movies where New Frontier or Superman Doomsday. You know, they had to they had to excise such large segments of the story to make them fit in the runtime. I, I can appreciate that, but 
you know, losing the Smallville sequence broke my heart. Losing the Jimmy episode broke my heart. So there, there were some omissions there that were really kind of tough for me to get past. I got to say though, love Christina Hendricks as Lois. Love that. The, the voice cast overall, I was a big fan of, but love, love her as Lois. Um, so I was happy to, to have that performance. I, I, I'm, I remain mixed about the, the change to Lex. Um, your, your argument is, is well taken and I don't, it's not like I disagree. I, I don't really know where I land because there's something, there's something about that comic ending where you know Lex has this mo- this epiphany, right? As he has experiencing Superman's powers and finally has a sense of what it is Superman perceives how we're all connected, right? And the powers fade, and Superman destroys the you know remaining serum that Lex has, and you know Lex instantly lashes out. Right, he's like, well, now I could have saved everyone, and it's that punch to the face. And if if you had cared about saving the world, you would have done it years ago. And to me, I kind of look at that this iteration of Lex, at least, and I kind of say that to me feels like a fitting end. But I can also see the value in him actually having that redemptive moment after. Also, I I, I know that this might be tough to reconcile because in the last episode, we talked about whatever happened to the man of tomorrow and Smallville in particular. I won't rehash the whole thing, but basically uh, one of the things that allowed me to make peace with with, uh, the Tom Welling scene in in Crisis is there's nothing to give us the indication of this in the scene. However, talk about headcanon, I'm fascinated by the idea, a version of a story where the Clark and Lex of Smallville reconcile, repair the friendship that was seemingly broken forever. So I'm on board with the idea of redemption for Lex. In this instance, though, I don't know, that punch to the face really uh, really just felt like the note to go out on. But I, I, I remain conflicted on that. But what I wanted to ask you when it comes to Lex in particular, the big Lex issue, number five, right, where Clark is interviewing him at, at prison. At the end of the story, as Lex is you know, leading Clark away through that subterranean uh, passageway, Lex says there's no deep psychology behind my hatred for Superman. How would you feel if someone deliberately stood in your way over and over? You know, we've talked a lot about Lex on the show. I did a whole multi-part event on Lex and and the evolution over the years and everything and, you know, grew up with this Smallville iteration where there's this friendship that goes awry between these two guys. Do you, what what is your reaction to that line? Uh, This idea that there's no deep psychology, it's really this simple. Does that... Does that ring true? Does that not not jive with sort of your your conception of Lex and this dynamic? Like, what what do you make of that? Well, I I think the character believes that. I don't think it's true, but I think the character believes that, and I I think that it pretty much explains everything about the character because you know, regardless of what origin you use or what setup, you know, it's always the same that Lex hates Super. Lex doesn't just want to conquer the world and Superman keeps getting in his way. Lex hates him. Like that is the, that is the defining characteristic of their relationship. Like Lex hates this man and he gives a bunch of different reasons, right? I remember on one episode, Ralph talked about like the cuckoo theory, like, you know, sometimes super um, Lex believes that Superman is the, the, the 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 beginning of an alien invasion, right? This immortal, super powerful person who only looks like us but isn't us is going to populate this world and, and fill it with uh, this dead race and all of this other terrible stuff, and all of that motivation 
is deep psychology. But to Lex, it's simple because Lex comes from the perspective of you have unlimited power. Why are you not doing what I would do with unlimited power? I have conquered every aspect of this world that I have set out to do. I was president. I conquered capitalism. I invented any, you know, super scientific thing that needed to be from the plot. I've done all of that, but you show up and you can do anything that you can think of. And all you want to do is help people. And Lex can't see things from that point of view, which is why he's such a good foil. So when he says there's no deep psychology, I think the character believes that. And I think it's why the smartest man who's ever lived keeps ending up in prison. Because, well, no, Lex, there is really deep psychology about this. And Clark understands that. He's trying to get you to see that. And that's why I like in the movie, because I like knowing that, if nothing else, Lex isn't going to be a problem anymore. You know, Lex actually realized, like, oh, man, I was wrong. And because he's Lex, because he's not just someone on death row, he does something about it. He says, okay, Superman's gone. Here you go. Now you have his power. What are you guys going to do with it? Did everyone watch and learn what I learned? Do you know how to help each other? Do you know how to take this information, this, this literal fire from Olympus and be good with it? Or you know, are you all going to turn out like me? And and I just think that's so perfect. And we know that when Quimptum gets it, he's going to try to create another Superman and, you know, someone who isn't a bizarro and someone who's going to begin the, uh, the, 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 the Superman lineage uh, that we see in all-star Superman reflected in, in Cal Kent and the other characters. Um, and I, I love that in one version of the story that begins with Lex, because it's like, yeah, why not? You know, his redemption is something that Superman accomplished. Maybe the greatest of his labors, really, if you think about it. Well said, well said. And I have to say, too, with with Lex, a couple of things that I really loved about this. Uh, one is, you know, we've seen numerous uh, Lex Luthor real estate schemes. I love that at the top of this story, he sabotaged this mission to the sun, but he's also invested in, in he's got this water scheme, right? Like where he's building dams, <laughs> he's going to control the water supply because now it's going to be in short yeah. supply. And for So I just thought it's like, that was such a nice nod to these real estate schemes that, that we've seen before. And then, you know, the fact that ultimately Superman is able to save our son because of what Lex did to him in manipulating him into the situation where he has to intervene with this manned mission to the sun. And, uh, he, his, his cells are oversaturated with solar radiation and they start dying. Right. But if not for that, uh, he would not be able to save the sun in the end. So really Lex is basically the hero of the story, I guess, is what it comes down to. I mean, in many ways, but in many ways he is, he is the protagonist, you, you, you know? I mean, you, you, you want to think that a story called All-Star Superman, is, the protagonist is going to be Superman, but he's really not. You know, he's reacting to a lot of things when the Kryptonian astronauts show up, when the Bizarros show up, when, uh, when the Doomsday issue happens. Like, he's reacting to these things. And for the most part, he's, he's there, you know, in the beginning of where he is at the end. I'm not saying the character doesn't change at all, but when, when Dr. Quintum says, you're going to die. He's like, oh yeah, I kind of figured that that was the case. And then at the end, when he goes into the sun, it's like, you know, those around him have changed. Lois has come to accept the truth and, and, and Lex has come around. But, you know, in many ways, the other characters are the protagonists in the story. And I think that's one of the reasons that this thing works so well, because like the reader, you're seeing people affected by what Superman 
does. Superman is Superman. He will continue to be Superman. He's going to come out of the sun. He's going to continue to be Superman. And in his wake, there were 100,000 other Supermen, and they all did the best they possibly could, even even Zabaro, right? Like this all-star Superman is filled with versions of Superman that aren't Superman, whether it's Atlas and Solomon, the Kryptonian astronauts, Bizarro, a hundred other examples I could list. And the whole point is that Morrison is showing you like one aspect of what made this character popular isn't enough. You need all of them and you need all of them working together. You need to see someone mourning their father uh, just as strongly as they want their, their wife's birthday to be perfect just as much as they want their enemy not to die in vain because of anger. That's something so petty, but also a man who takes pride in his work. Like Clark is all of these things. He's a multitude of things. And when you put them together, you get the greatest idea we've ever had and you get the greatest hero in the world. But no, I, I would say that Lex and Lois and the other ones, they're the protagonists. They're the ones who want things and who change over the course of the story while Superman is uh, affecting the world around them. Interesting. You know, it's funny when we talk about his reaction to finding out about his, his death, you know, what, what, stood out to me a is is when leo quintum is sort of you know beating around the bush a little bit and superman just says tell me straight that i think is an example of the the midwestern values there it's like let's just let's just do this but you know he takes a beat and the first thing he says is you know don't tell anyone there are things i have to do first and i love that the first thing he does is tell lois that he's superman and and I, I I mean I, I I agree certainly to a point I think in um, most of these issues he he is you know he's not driving the action he's re, he's reacting right to things that are happening um, with a number of exceptions in particular when he uh, you know lets Lois in on the secret and takes her to the fortress um, and then later especially when we get into all of the Candor business uh, as well but throughout the story and and it's I guess this is fitting because. Um, you know, we just passed the holidays and I have my annual tradition of watching It's a Wonderful Life. And it, what? That's such a you thing to do. Like that is absolutely, if I had to guess, if someone asked me like, what do you think Anthony Desiato is doing for the holidays? I would, I would guess, I would say at some point he's probably watching A Wonderful Life. Like that is just, that's a you thing to do. And I love that that is something you actually do do. Absolutely. And look, and I've talked about this on the show before, I'm sure, but I know I, I did. You know, that whole movie, you have a character who longs to do great things. And along the way, what he's actually doing is a series of good things, good deeds for his neighbors. And in the end, in his hour of need, those people rally around him, right? And he realizes what he had all along. And in, in kind of a, a similar way, you know, I, I see that with this version of the character. It's a character, again, driven by this, this, neighborly desire, right, to be to be kind and to help in all of these situations throughout the story. And maybe one of the reasons I, I hated that the animated movie lost the Smallville sequence, when we get to Clark's eulogy for Jonathan, and again, going back to this idea of seeing more of the man and less the God in this story, uh, you know, you, you, you read Clark's eulogy about how Jonathan Kent taught me that the strong have to stand up for the weak, that the bullies don't like being bullied back, and that the measure of a man lies not in what he says, but what he does. Like we say at the end of every episode, it's about what you do, it's about action. It's like that informs, I think you once you have that, even before you have that, but once you have that, like everything that this character does totally tracks and you see, you know, you, you see where it comes from and you see that kindness and and like you said, what it inspires in other people. Uh, so, so it's, 
it's a beautiful thing. And that's where I, I think, again, for me in particular, where so much of that humanity comes from in this iteration, this all-star version of the character, while you're getting these greatest hits of uh, all of these really iconic aspects of the Superman mythology, it is still ultimately grounded in that. I, I, we still have a lot to unpack, but I, I want to talk about the en- the ending and and how it ties in with One Million. So, you know, I, I suspect most people are, are familiar with One Million, but in, in case you're not, this was, I believe it was 98, right? It was a, what are you laughing? Yeah, that sounds about right. Yeah. So I'm just wondering if you have a single sentence synopsis of One Million, which is one of the most complicated <laughs> crossovers I've ever read. So I cannot wait to hear this. I'll, so again, we're actually going to be doing a One Million episode a little bit later, uh, and actually in okay. a couple of months, so not too long for now. So we're going to spend some more time on One Million. So I, I don't, you know, I won't, this won't be exhaustive, but, uh, you know, a four-issue miniseries, but it tied into every DC title published in that in that month. Uh, this was, again, in the vein of uh, your your Zero Hour, your Final Night, your Genesis, those, those DC events of the 90s, and spearheaded by Morrison, who wrote the core four-issue miniseries. And it was this idea that, we have a version of the Justice League from the 853rd century led by a descendant of Superman who comes to our time uh, to invite the Justice League to their era to witness the return of the original Superman, Superman Prime, who is emerging at long last from the sun. And not bad, right, for a, for a, a succinct summary of this? Uh, you <clears throat> left out why it's called DC One Million, though. Do you know that? Oh yeah, well that's it's what like one million uh, you know in the publishing history, right? If it had been uh, like one yeah, million the, months, the arbitrary, uh, the seemingly arbitrary setting of I don't know what it is, but I think it's like the eight hundred fifty third comma number 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 century, like somewhere so far in the future that you know it doesn't have any bearing, is I think when when the first DC comic would have reached or will, will reach issue 1 million. So that's why it's named that. And that's why it's set so absurdly far in the future. I, I just love that because it's, it's never even mentioned in the, in the comic, the comic only ever refers to it as like the justice Legion mm-hmm. a event. I just, I think it's funny. So we, let's just the, the disclaimer. We recognize that these Morrison is not literally in a strict continuity sense writing the same Superman in One Million and All-Star, right? One Million was set firmly in the post-crisis era. That's the version of Superman who was married to Lois. That's who who they were writing then. However, I think it's more than fair to say that in a spiritual sense, Morrison was writing the same character, just as Morrison was writing the same character in the New 52, right? I think in much the same way that Morrison approached Batman, like the entirety of the Batman mythology exists and the times change, but we can sort of look at it as this vast tapestry. Uh, I think it's fair to say that's what you know Morrison was uh, intending here as well. So, at least in a spiritual sense, uh, I, you know, I think we, you know, we can we can see those connection points. So, it's a literal sense too if you work in hyper time, uh, but we don't need to discuss that here. Yeah, that that might be pushing things a little bit. It might get yeah. into Superman Beyond territory, um, but uh, and and in in um, in All Star, you do see a number of direct ties, right? So small the Smallville issue in particular, we have this whole time travel aspect, the Superman uh, 
uh, what do they call themselves? A Superman, not emergency squad or rescue squad. What do they, what do they call themselves? The Superman. Oh, I just call them the super squad. Is that not what they're yeah, called? Yeah, maybe that is just it. Maybe the Superman okay. squad, right? And uh, our present day Superman meets the golden Superman prime. And there's this moment where he says, you know, which of my descendants are you? And Superman prime is just like, ha. Huh. And of course, Superman, you know, fights uh, Solaris, the tyrant son. So there, you know, we have a lot of, we have a lot of ties here to the point where it's reasonable to look at the end of all-star where Superman is being converted into this solar energy being and flies into the heart of the sun to, to repair the sun after the damage caused by, by Solaris and kind of draw a line from that to the, uh, to the Superman prime who emerges in that 1 million story so far, so far into the future. Now, of course, this doesn't totally line up in 1 million, uh, in particular in one of the Superman issues. And I think it might've been man of tomorrow, but uh, they actually filled in the gaps and and the the sort of the backstory in that one million event was that uh, after everyone around him had died, he outlived everyone. Superman journeyed the stars for like hundreds of years, and then came back. He had you know spawned a, a, you know a, his descendants already, and they continued to to protect the galaxy while he was gone. But then when he returned, he took up residence and built a new fortress in the sun. So um, it wasn't that he went straight to the sun. So there are some differences, but. Ultimately, at the end of, of One Million, Superman Prime emerges and through some fifth dimensional wizardry uh, and a DNA sample of Lois Lane, uh, they are able to uh, recreate Lois for Superman Prime and also bring back a new Krypton as well. And our JLA is there to witness it. And uh, we have Kyle Rayner who's recounting all of this. And this is where the, the bit about the wink comes into play because he shares that the golden Superman prime turned and, and winked. So this idea of like what an appropriate ending for Superman is, I think there, I mean, there are only so many ways you can go with this. Uh, Smallville and whatever happened to the man of tomorrow give us this idea of him relinquishing his powers and living as a man and having a family, right? And then presumably dying as, as, as everyone does. Or we have something along the lines of, of what we get here where Superman basically lives forever. And then there's also another instance that comes to mind in the Action Comics 1000 issue. Uh, Tom King wrote a story where uh, Superman was visiting Earth as it was dying. And he was saying a final farewell to Jonathan and Martha, who of course were long, long gone. And there's a reference to Lois, you know, taking a serum that en- enables her to, to, to keep living. So in, in all these instances, I, I suppose the, the Lois seems to be the constant, right? Either he's living as a man with Lois or he, you know, remains this, this super being uh, indefinitely and is either reunited or, or remains with Lois. And I'm sure there are other Elseworlds and, and, and other variations, but you know these certainly seem to be kind of heavy hitters when we're talking about like what what becomes of this character. Let me ask you first: what, like, which iteration, which version do you do you gravitate more toward as an end, as a general ending for this character? I think that all the best Superman stories are love stories. I, I think that uh, Clark Kent was raised by two parents who loved 
themselves, excuse me, each other and him uh, as much as as a family can love each other. And I think that is uh, his strongest imprint of what he's learned on the world. So I think he values that very much. And, um, you know, he meets Lois and he falls in love with Lois and that's, that's it. You know, that is the beginning and the end of the story. And that happens in action comics, number one. So I, I don't think that there's any act three for the man of tomorrow that doesn't include him spending whatever it is that his life is with Lois. I, I, I think there, there always has to be some reason uh, that they get to live together with kids, without kids, as immortals, as conceptual beings, um, at the end of Crisis on Infinite Earths, the the two of them, the original ones, the Golden Age characters, they're given just a generic heaven with the idea being that these characters can't die. They're too important. They're the foundation stones of everything else. And Marv Wolfman and George Perez very nicely say, you know what? You guys get to go to heaven and you get to enjoy yourselves. And, uh, well, you know, Jeff Johns wrecked that, but we're not going to talk about that tonight. But that's that's my headcanon is, is if, if Superman is alive, Lois has to be alive because otherwise I I just don't think that that's something he would want. I wouldn't want to put that on him. Um you know, another another great example of what I'm talking about is the stories of, of Kingdom Come and Injustice, yes. which are predicated on the idea that Lois is is not just uh, unfortunately murdered, but murdered violently as retribution against him, and he he loses it. He becomes unmoored. Uh, Injustice a little bit more aggressively. I prefer Kingdom Come, but he. There's nothing left. He just he doesn't he he's rudderless. He doesn't have a connection to the world around him anymore. And I I felt that I I've been married a very long time, and I I completely understood that. I understood that even before I was married. Like this is what this guy really wants. Like he can do anything you can think to have him do, but what he wants is to go home to the to the brunette who yells at him, right? The whatever one. So I, I think that, that that has to be very important. And I think any story that doesn't have Lois in it is just going to, you know, he'll, he'll find a way to go back to her, you know, whether it's giving up his power so that they can have kids in a couple decades together or, um, you know, doing some fifth dimensional shenanigans so that they can live together uh, in the far future or, or something else. I, I think the story of Superman is the story of uh, Clark and Lois. So, you know, I'm, I, I don't disagree with any of that. So it seems like for you, as long as Lois is there, it feels like a right ending. I, I guess what, what I'm really, really wrestling with is this idea of living forever. And before, before I give my take, let me ask you this. Um, how do I put this? You, cer- you certainly can read All-Star totally in a vacuum on its own, not in conjunction with One Million. And in fact, I... You know, given how how popular All Star is and how well it's sold and in bookstores and everything, I'm sure there are a ton of people, right, who really have no conception of one million. You know, maybe they're and, and honestly, even if you just read it on its own, you know, we know at the end of All Star, Superman gives Leo Quintum, uh, you know, his his DNA his genetic code along with Lois's, right, and we end on this, you know, the 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 Superman symbol looking like a two, right. So this idea, more Superman will come. So. You know, when you get to the, the the descendants and the and the and the other issues, you know, it all kind of tracks, and there's this internal logic and and everything. So, you definitely can read it on its own, I guess. And, and even going back to what we said at the beginning, this idea of a final Superman story, I think that's definitely the intention, and I think that's the more than makes sense to read it that way. But you know, Lois, 
Lois says at the end of the story, like he's repairing the sun and when he's, you know, when he's done, he'll come back. I mean, you could read this, that he comes back in the relatively near future. Again, I do not think that is the intention, but I suppose you potentially could. It's open-ended enough. Uh, certainly when you pair it with one million, that changes things a little bit. Do you, do you have any sort of feeling like, how do I put this? Are you interested in a version of the story divorced from one million where you're just kind of reading this on its own and it really is more open-ended and you don't know if he ever comes back and if he does when, and you can sort of build your own ending or do you like reading it and do you feel it's more effective really in that context of one million where we kind of know, at least in a general spiritual sense, what, what the ultimate outcome is. I, I, I advocate divorcing it from 1 million. Uh, I don't like the idea that if Superman goes into the sun in issue 12 of all-star, he's not seen for another million years or whatever arbitrary number it is. Cause that means that Lois spends the rest of her life alone. Um, and I, I hate that. So I don't care if, you know, he, takes a coffee break and comes back for 50 years uh, or once he's golden God Superman in the year 853,000, he time travels back. Um, You know, they Morrison constantly makes a point of saying that by that point, Superman will have fifth dimensional powers. And that's a term Morrison throws around a great deal. But what it basically means is you can, you can time travel at will and you don't have to worry about paradoxes or anything. That's really what it means for story purposes. So, you know, if, if, if Superman shows up as, you know, what's his name in, in the Alan Moore story, Jordan Elliott, right? And he shows up and he marries Lois and they pull a Captain America and Endgame and they have a very happy life. I, I do think that's important because like I said, I I don't I don't think the connection to one million strengthens both stories to the degree that it's worth imagining Lois alone for the rest of her life. Um, I think that's I think that's miserable. And I don't think that that's what was intended. I do like that the stories connect, but you know, to your point, it's like you can always go back into the sun. <laughs> like I don't know how long it's going to take to make an artificial heart, whatever that even means. Uh, but you know, you can come back and forth. You can do whatever the story entails. The idea that he's just up there for eight hundred thousand years is, was always a little weird to me. I, I kind of assumed that was artistic license, but no. To to your point, I, I'd rather know that you know he's he's going to come back and he's going to be with her and and eventually he'll go back there and eventually she'll know like, okay, I'm going to join you one day, but we have to let this thing play out and we have to let the world uh, get on with its business. Yeah. Fair fair enough. I, uh, I, I guess I, I'm in, I uh, would align myself with that as well. I I guess what, what I'm ultimately getting at here is any version of the story where he lives forever or as close to forever as we see in these stories, whether it is kingdom come, you know, and then, you know, and again, that's a story where he finds love anew with wonder woman after the, the tragic loss of Lois. But, you know, you see him alive there in the time of the Legion of superheroes, right? And uh, he's seen his younger self flying around, but you know, whether it's that, or, that's Connor. Oh, what? That's Connor, by the way. Well, who was flying around. That's Connor. Right? Yeah. Sorry. That's right. uh, Alex Ross said that in an interview. That's Connor Kent. Oh, right on. Okay. So whether it's that or the Tom King version where, you know, Earth Earth is dying and, and Lois is taking the serum or the one million version where Superman's been been gone for just untold centuries and then, you know, has a very lovely reunion with Lois. I I wouldn't I wouldn't 
and this bear with me here, I would not wish life everlasting on on Superman. I there's something inherently tragic to me about that. Um, did you watch The Good Place on NBC by any chance? The Kristen Bell Ted Danson sitcom. Uh, I I tried. I did. Uh, you very heartily recommended Veronica Mars to me, and I got through the first season, and I had to give it up. And I did the same thing with The Good Place. I tried. Uh, I got through the first season, and then I had to stop. Oh, all right. Maybe not a Kristen Bell fan. It's all right. But huge, huge, huge Kristen Bell fan. That's hence the oh. uh, the the second attempt. But I uh, no, I couldn't do it. Oh, I'm sorry to hear that. I. I don't want to spoil anything about The Good Place. It ran for four seasons. And if anyone hasn't watched it, I, again, I know it wasn't your cup of tea, but I, I loved it. And I don't want to spoil much about it or anything about it, but it does deal with the afterlife. And at a certain point in the show, it does explore this idea of what it would truly mean to be in the afterlife, even The Good Place, aka heaven, uh, for an eternity. And kind of the toll that would eventually take and the importance of knowing that there is an end. Again, not to, not to get too you know philosophical or, or spiritual, but I think what makes any journey, right, so meaningful is that it, it doesn't last forever. And, and so when I look at these stories where, where Superman's just, uh, you know, <laughs> just still, still going... I, there's just something inherently sad to me about that. And so I think that's why, and I said last time that, you know, the whatever happened ending is my preferred, you know, a, a version of a finale for the character. Um, because I guess I just don't, I don't see it as this great gift to be alive in the 31st century or <laughs> the, you know, the 850th or, or whatever it might be. So, you know, I keep coming back to that. Now at the same time, we're talking Morrison and All-Star and look, Morrison and JLA, for example, you know, really played up these characters as living myths, right? And so I think, and you see, I think you see that theme in All Star as well. This idea of of Superman really as this as this living, breathing myth. And so I think this idea that he goes into the sun and that maybe he is even there for for that many centuries, it's it's fitting, I think, for the Morrison version and for the story we get here. So. I'm not even saying that I dislike this as an ending. And I also, look, we don't need to have this. We, we haven't gotten a ton of final Superman stories as we talked about last time. And, and when we do, I think, you know, it is appropriate and fitting to, to approach them in different ways. So I'm not even saying, oh, I wish this ended differently. But I think it's a fitting ending for this story. But I just, when I think about, generally speaking, what I, what I would want for my favorite character, it's, 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 not, it's not that. It's just not. One of my, I... I you make an excellent point. One of my favorite um, last days of Superman bits is from Red Sun, um, where the last time you see him, he's been on Earth so long that uh, the sun has become red, like like Rao was for Krypton, and he doesn't have his powers anymore, and he's finally starting to age. So even though he's been on the Earth for, I, I don't know, a million years or, or however many, he actually does have an end in sight. And he's not dumb. He must have known that that was going to happen once the once the sun changed. Um, and he's comfortable with that. And he's narrating to, I don't remember who he's talking to, but he's narrating down his thoughts. And he's like, well, I was sweating today. You know, I noticed wrinkles. I noticed whatever else. But it's clearly something he's accepted because obviously anytime during that, he could have left or he could have made amends. Um, so I, I, I agree with you. I, I think that regardless of uh, what his 
conception is he's really, really human, uh, at least mentally, at least psychologically. So I agree. I, I really don't see the character as wanting to live forever, certainly not uh, alone. And, and I kind of like the idea that presented with the opportunity, he might say, oh, okay, you know, it's time to have, it's time to have my twilight years. Um, but I, I will say something too, you know, something that is important for also Superman is Superman is constantly presented as having a perception on things that is non-human. Um, and by that, I mean, you know, Clark isn't human. Like even in the good place, they talk about um, there's mortal and there's immortal, right? Ted Danton's character is immortal or he's a conceptual being, you know, humans are built and designed from the perspective of mortality, you know, meat machines we we age we run out of fuel all the other stuff um superman isn't you know superman is powered by the very energy that powers everything else um so his perception is different as well so you have to remember that while we may look at things and say okay we're going to reach an end at one point we expected that he doesn't necessarily have that perspective uh even when he's talking to lois he says you know not only has my strength increased my curiosity and my compassion and everything else has increased a million fold and i like the idea that and you said this before but him bursting into solar radiation it's him dying from a human perspective, but from a Kryptonian perspective, it's really just evolving. Um, Morrison said in an interview that in issue number one, when Superman uh, creates a field of invulnerability around the craft and pulls it to Earth, that was a reference to the electric Superman of the late 90s, a version of the character that Superman uh, Morrison had written. And it's this idea that um, the idea of of Superman becoming a being of pure energy isn't something that they invented for all-star Superman. It's there. You know, if you are powered by solar radiation, you're something else is going on with you. You don't just look and act like us. You're you're a different type of creature. Uh, So I think that's important too, because, you know, it affects the, the perception. But like I said, I also, I also think that, you know, if they, if if Clark knows that there is the possibility his story might end, he might he might take it. Yeah, I, I, it's such a such a fascinating angle to all of this. So, uh, not that I want to rush us through, but let maybe we could take a again not lightning round per se, but like let's kind of let's kind of bounce through the issues a little bit uh, and 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 talk about what you know what what resonated with us the most. So, you know, we're just past the hour mark. We haven't talked about probably one of the most. Uh, maybe famous pages, which is the opening one, right? This this beautifully concise, <laughs> uh, fundamental telling of the origin story in those few panels, right? Doomed planet, desperate scientists, last hope, kindly couple. That's it. You know, we did two two long episodes uh, a couple of years ago on this podcast on all of the, virtually all of the tellings of the origin and. There are so many different ways to tackle it, and it's been done, and I'm sure it will continue to be done. And uh, man, I'm a fan of, of Superman origin stories, no doubt. But there's something so so simple and pure about about this, and and it's always kind of interesting when you when you strip something down right to its core essentials. Like what what do you ultimately need uh, in, in order to capture the essence of all of this? And I, I think they did it in that page. Eight words. Uh, I, I mean, it's it's beautiful. Again, I, I keep saying beautiful, but it, it's it's 
the four panels on the very first page show a sequence of events that aren't just unique to this character. Um, they are fundamental in every version of this character. Like, like this is any Superman comic could open with this page with these texts and regardless of what the other setting or anything else uh, is, it's still applicable. That's amazing. Like you, you talked about distillation. I mean, I can't imagine how long this took, but you know, you, you take the entire mythology decades and decades and adaptations uh, more than anyone else, a, 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 a symbol that is as popular as anything else, uh, the worldwide, and you distill it down to eight words and four panels. And that is amazing. That is, you know, that's a stained glass window. That's a prayer. That That is a concept that you want to communicate so clearly you've reduced it to almost uh, only its most basic parts. Um, and then to turn the page and to get the double page spread of Superman uh, flying, I, I, I don't know what the term is, but alongside, underneath, over the sun is, it's perfect. It's a statement of purpose. It says, again, this isn't necessarily for the person reading Superman every month. I think they'll enjoy it as well. But this is for anyone who's ever had any interest in the character. This is this is for you. Pick this up and read this and, and you know, please come back next month. Yeah, I mean, it really just, it just, it's so elemental. It just taps into the most salient, relevant parts of this story. And look, again, I love a Superman origin story. There's so much to to expand upon and account for how he became this person. But just in these panels alone, you know, born out of, out of the, the destruction of the planet and this last act of love, right? And ultimately it is the influence of the people who find him, who turn him into this. And you get all of that in those few panels. I've used, I've, I've said this on the show before, but I tweeted it recently, uh, not too long ago. And it was what became one of my most liked tweets uh, I'm glad it resonated with people, but the way I've really come to look at all of this is, you know, Jor-El makes the ultimate Hail Mary pass in shooting that rocket across the stars. And then Jonathan Kent does the most impossible thing. He catches it. Like he, ca it's such a beautiful story. And, he, and, you know, you get that version of it just in those pages there. It's, it's absolutely beautiful. So it's a, a, you know, wonderful way to, you know, kick off the story. And then of course we have Superman saving the, uh, the man mission to the sun, which has been sabotaged by Luther, and then he gets his his diagnosis, and uh, you know, right from the first issue, what becomes a bit of a, a motto uh, that Superman says throughout the story, and is then even said to him by Lois at a certain point. There's always a way, right? Something that's uh, such an indelible aspect of of the character, and and I think a very inspiring one, and you and you get that um, even from this first issue. I mentioned before about how I love the way quietly draws generally, but in particular Clark and sort of this like a lumbering, almost like oafish uh, version of the character. But what's so, I love, and I'm sure this comes from the, both the writing and the art, but I love this notion that when he's being clumsy, he's saving someone, right? It's so great. Like when he bumps into the guy on the street, right? And then something falls from above and the guy would have been hit if Clark hadn't bumped into him. Like you get basically any instance where Clark is being clumsy, you have that behind it, which I think is great. And when he's having that conversation with Lois, you know, and you talk about the humanity and how he's processing all of this. No, he doesn't have, 
uh, you know, we, we don't get internal, you know, na- narration, uh, you know, about, about what he's feeling about this per se, but, you know, he asks Lois, you know, very tentatively about, you know, have you thought about, you know, I forget the exact words, but basically, you know, your own mortality or dying. And, you know, so like he is wrestling with this. Uh, so I, I like the ways in which this, you know, this manifests throughout the story, even if it's not so like in your face, like he is, he is processing it. But again, maybe in more of that Midwestern way where it's like a less, less in your face. Thank you to all members of my Patreon community for supporting this podcast. If you like what you hear and are not a member yet, please consider signing up today at patreon.com slash Anthony Desiato. We offer a variety of monthly reward tiers and discounted annual memberships are available too. Beginning at the $1 level, you can listen to Digging for Justice, my exclusive DC movie rewatch podcast. Click the link in the show notes for more. If you're looking for other ways to support the show, leaving a rating and review on Apple Podcast goes a long way and only takes a second. You're also welcome to join the conversation on social media via the links in the show notes. Last but not least, we are an affiliate of BCW Supplies, so the next time you need to restock on comic book bags, boards, boxes, and more, be sure to use promo code FSP to save 10% on your order. That's FSP for Flat Squirrel Productions. It helps support the show too. Thank you. This episode made possible in part by educator, hobby comic book collector, and pop culture enthusiast, Sam Lim. Sam just moved to the South Jersey area and is looking to connect with other comics fans as well as retailers. They are also looking for comic shops to explore, so recommendations are welcome. Be sure to follow Sam on Instagram at SZLComics. I also have to say that the notion that he reveals his secret to Lois and she doesn't believe him is brilliant. I, I just thought that was such a, such a great twist on this, on this trope, which I'm not a fan of. I, but, but again, if we are trying to tell a story that is representative of the larger mythology not just the triangle era, right? <laughs> With the larger mythology, Lois not knowing the secret was such a big part of the stories for decades. So, you know, even though, again, going back to the first time I read this, I was like, this isn't my Superman and, and Lois. But, you know, I, I think in the in, in totality, it's, it's, it's fitting. But then you get this great twist of her not believing him, uh, which I just, I, I, I love that. I was such a fan of that turn. I buy it because, um, to your point, it harkens back to the literal decades that Superman spent trying to convince Lois that he and Clark weren't the same person. So it's this real, like, turning it on its head. Um, And even if you don't have that context, again, you you know the classic love triangle is, you know, Lois loves Superman – who you know is really Clark, and Clark loves Lois, and Lois doesn't give him the time of day. I mean, it's 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 beautiful. It's it's survived eighty years because of its its wonderful simplicity. And this idea of her being like, "Oh, you can't be Clark," is is wonderful because it's also about denial. Because it means that this guy, who she was looking down on and standing next to and getting, you know, uh, bylines before her is the same guy she was obsessed with. And this is what he was doing in his off hours. So part of it too, is just her not wanting to process it. And I think that's great because when she does, you know, 
come to believe him and come to see that it's all true and come to see that everything is true, um, you know, she doesn't love him any less. And I, I think that's great too, because it rewards his faith in her. Um, and I, I think their entire relationship is perfect. Um, you know, I always go back to the fact that Lois and Lex are both given his powers and Lex, uh, you know, commits vile acts and ultimately he, he comes around. He, again, his big, beautiful mind uses the powers to, uh, further the cause of science and he sees how everything's connected and that moves him and he comes back down to earth. And it's not that Lois couldn't do that, but Lois already, uh, is so curious about the world that she's constantly describing the things that she can see and experience and hear and feel. And it's this sensory thing and she's all about it. And she's like, this is wonderful. This is how you are. Let's go fight lava men or dinosaur people or whatever it is. And I think that's a really good reflection of what Clark hoped to accomplish with this because clearly he knows I'm dying, but I've created a potion that can give my powers to other people. This might come in handy. Let's see what, what happens and who who's a better test case than Lois, the woman I love. And Lois, of course, does all the right things with it because she's watched him do it. So I think that entire mini arc is is perfect. The the one thing I will say though is is there a less romantic place in the world than the Fortress of Solitude? I just like I'm taking you to this place that is nothing but ice and crystal and there's a statue of my dead parents over there and there's the titanic and the challenger and it's just i just kept waiting for her to be like can we go to literally anywhere else but hoth here because this is this is terrifying um but that that's that's just a minor quibble i was always put off by uh by the fortress Uh, my my favorite superman hangout is when jack kirby had him hang out uh, in the wild area beneath Cadmus in the 70s. I think it was only in a handful of issues, but I was always like, please, please bring the wild area back. <laughs> uh, no, I, I agree with, with everything with Lois. And one of my favorite moments in the entire series is uh, at the conclusion of her superpowered day when she says to him, you know, everyone knows what Lois sees in Superman, but like, why me? And he says, I guess there has to be one thing I just can't help. And, you know, he takes her, uh, you know, uh, above the earth and they share this kiss and it's very romantic. And again, it, it's it's not the version of the character who had, of the characters, you know, the, 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 the depth and extent and duration of the relationship that they had, but just in this encapsulation of it, I, I thought it was wonderful. And this idea of Lois like Lois being the key, like Lois is always going to be the, the, you know, his, the tether to his humanity, the peace, whether they are human and grow old and die or through various machinations live forever. It's like, it has to be Lois, you know, some of the, you know, the, the, the most notable uh, alternate takes like kingdom come like injustice all centered around, well, what happens when you take her away? Like she's so central to all of this and that's where the Snyder movies were going. So it's, Again, I think it really taps into that core aspect of of Lois. With the I, with the identity thing, I there's one moment uh, in the last or second to last issue, and I'm sure I'm reading too much into this, but it's when Clark is at the Daily Planet, and he's really fading now. It's after he's fought Solaris, but now he has to contend with Lex, and and he stands up to Lex, and everyone 
just assumes that he's Superman posing as Clark. And Jimmy says, and this is where I, I know I'm reading too much into this, but Jimmy says, and I quote, nice uh, disguise, Superman. And I just like, did that, did you, did, I don't know, did that make you think about anything? Because I just, I'm saying to myself, like, well, what if it's not that they can't believe this, but what if it's like they just are so committed to the bit, like committed to going along with his ruse I don't know. In that moment, I was like, well, maybe Jimmy, maybe it's not that they, they don't believe it, but it's, again, maybe not so much with Lois, but with some of the other characters, I just couldn't help but think that. Well, I think, no, I, I think that's true with, with Jimmy Olsen. Yeah. I, I think that's always been true with Jimmy Olsen. I, I think, I think Jimmy, like Jimmy Olsen knows Clark Kent is Superman, but for whatever reason, he also respects his friend for wanting to keep them separate. And I, I just, yeah, that, to me, that's just, I, w- I won't say it's canon, but to me, it's just like, yeah, of, of course Jimmy knows. Like Jimmy, Jimmy is his sidekick. Jimmy Olsen is Superman's sidekick. He's been that way since, uh, you know, before even Supergirl was created. Like he knows the two of them are the same. He respects his friend too much to call attention to it, and you know, he probably is hoping that one of them will reveal that to him. But, but no, Jimmy's got too much world experience. You know, Jimmy's the only member of the daily planet staff who's as comfortable with the absurd and the supernatural as he is with the mundane and the day to day. So no, I, I read that as Morrison saying, Jimmy Olsen clearly knows these two are the same people. He's just too nice to say anything about it. Yeah. I, I I like that reading of it as well. And on the note of Jimmy, I love, I feel like all-star gives us one of the best Jimmy Olsen treatments that we've gotten where it it taps into everything that I think you would want. I'm and I'm referring specifically to uh, issue four, where Superman is exposed to black kryptonite, right, and goes bad, and Jim has to has to save him, and he does so by uh, essentially becoming Doomsday, right? Like Doomsday was this biological weapon that was that was created, and and Jimmy injects himself with it, and he becomes this monster. And and I love the bit that the the signal watch was kind of the tether that allowed him to uh, uh, return to normal. So I thought that was great. But you know, it gives you Jimmy Olsen and his you know the amazing transformations of Jimmy Olsen, right? Like all these weird <laughs> these weird transformations that he went through, and especially in those wacky Silver Age stories. Like it gives you that it gives you him as as his pal. But again, just as far as like a little twist on it, not a pal who's being rescued, but who's actually doing the rescuing. Like I love as Superman is starting to change as he's experiencing the effects of black kryptonite. He's like, Jim, I'm in a jam. I love that phrase. But he's like, he's like, I need help. And the fact that, yeah, maybe he was the only one who was there, but I feel like either way, like he would turn to Jim and, and I really, really like that. And even just on the journalism side, this is a very accomplished Jim Olsen. He's got his yeah. for a day uh, Sunday feature where he, you know, uh, you know, the, the lives in as as you know these various roles and reports on it. And I just, it just felt like such a fully realized Jimmy. I I I've not yet read that Matt Fraction miniseries, which I know you're a big fan of, and we'll get to that down the line on the podcast. But you know, I, I always kind of you know Jim's always a character where I like I I long for for a little bit more, and I, I think this is such a great take on him where. It's he, he still retains the the core attributes of what you would want out of a Jimmy Olsen, but but is also capable and and shows that he's deserving of the the Superman pal moniker. Like he really proves it. I love this Jimmy. And you're leaving out the best part. Um, 
when he turns back and uh, Superman is okay, he yells to a bunch of bystanders, don't let anybody see him like this. Yeah. And he it's the only time he yells at the entire time. The, the fundamental aspect of Jimmy Olsen is that he is as protective of Superman as Superman is of every single person in the world. That's why their relationship is different. That's why Jimmy gets the the level of contact that he does not just because um you know he he happens to work with clark or or you need someone to talk to or whatever the reason at the end of the day it's like no jimmy's gonna protect you jimmy's gonna do what sidekicks do you know you get in trouble and i'm there and i'm used to this nonsense and i love that about him because i love the idea that superman is able to endear this into another person and this has the added weight of this guy probably knows you're pretending to be clark and he's not judging you for it he's also looking at you and saying oh okay but every once in a while you are going to need help you've need help in the past you're going to need it again I'm down for that. I'm absolutely 100% ready to do this. You need me to take some weird experimental formula, not to save you, but to make sure you don't hurt anyone else. Yeah, absolutely. And then once that's done, I'm going to make sure that, you know, no one ever says, Hey, Superman went bad one time. It's like, no, he didn't. He absolutely didn't. He had a bad day. He's okay. Now everything's going to be okay. You know, uh, we should all be so lucky as to have a Jimmy Olsen in our lives. For sure. For sure. And, you know, towards the end of that, as, as the black K infected Superman is getting weaker, he's kind of losing it. He says Superman can't die or something to that effect. So again, I think, you know, another instance where he is, he is wrestling with the fate that has befallen him. It's just, you know, again, typically taking these, you know, altered states or whatever the case may be, or, uh, you know, when he's in his Clark Kent guise where it's coming out. Right. So not, maybe not the way we typically see it, but it is there. You you mentioned before about how maybe the fortress is not super romantic. I don't disagree with that. (laughs) I've, um, you know, I, I, I'm totally on board with the fortress being the place where he communes with Jor-El and learns about his heritage and, and things like that. I've never been the biggest fan of, of the more silver age iteration where it's, I don't know, almost more Batcave-esque in, in terms of the mementos. Yeah. And, and I can't really put my finger on, on why necessarily, although it just, Part of me, again, goes back to that idea of him being a little bit more, that version being a little bit more removed from from his humanity. I mean, maybe that's why, but, and, oh, and I'll also say, this super curious Superman who's recreating the menu from the Titanic on the Titanic and creating potions or serums for Lois and copying genetic code, I bump up against that a little bit because that to me doesn't feel like Clark on the farm, but I I can reconcile it what really made me understand this version of the fortress and actually really love it is when he says to lois it's not a museum it's a time capsule and one day future generations will enter and they'll know what it was like to be at the dawn of the age of superheroes and i just to myself it's like yeah it's not that he's just like collecting this stuff there's more behind it and you get, we get such a great payoff in the Smallville issue where there's that time, what was it called? Time, not time eater, but uh, chronovore, the chronovore. And the, you know, the Superman squad says like, we only knew about this because of the photo that Lana Lang took at the Smallville diner where we saw it in the photo that was preserved in the fortress. So, you know, this idea of it being a time capsule that actually pays off down the line 
uh, it, it, again, especially this more Silver Age-esque iteration of the fortress, it, it really made me understand it in a way that I didn't before. I really like it now. So I, I, I enjoyed that a lot too. I, I always come back to something, um, you know, the, the bat cave is what someone who didn't have a childhood thinks your childhood room should be like. It's filled with all of the stuff that, you know, you like, and you have good memories of, and you have control over. No one else comes in my room, even though, you know, his dad comes in and cleans up occasionally and his friends come over. Um, and the fortress is is like that at the same time, except it's it's distant and remote because it's a place where Clark can go to think, like like Doc Savage before him, who also had an Arctic fortress. Um, but I, I always go back to my favorite headquarters in the DC universe is the Flash Museum. And I love the idea that the Flash, and there's no one more Midwestern than the Flash, has a place where he says, hey, listen, I did a bunch of cool things. I want to share them with you. I want you to come by, and I want you to see. And this is this is my buddy Len. He's a criminal, but it's okay. He broke out of prison once. He was there for his brother. Things are cool now. Or like, you know, th- this is all my stuff. This is my girlfriend. I can't tell you her real name and all this other stuff. And part of me wants that here too. It's like, there, you know, there'd be a great version of the fortress of solitude set up on the outskirts of metropolis which is supposed to be you know new york on a good day or people could just wander through and be like oh man the titanic this is great let's go aboard let's see what it was really like in this uh you know this 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 thing from 100 years ago so again i i just go back to um a lot of it's a lot of it's fine a lot of it's great and and it's really good but i just you know why do you got to be so aloof? Why, why do you got to be so out there? It's just like, you know, the, the whole issue with Lois suffering from paranoia and worrying about what is going on in there works so well as a horror story because, again, like, the place is terrifying. Like, it's just this, the, it's the, it's cavernous because it, it, it is a literal cavern, uh, but it's also drawn to be very austere because it's just Clark and a bunch of robots. So, I don't know. I don't really know what I'm trying to say. I just... Um, if uh, if Superman two or Superman Secondus or whatever the next one is called decides to set up the Super Museum in whatever their version of Queens is, I, I think uh, people would get a lot more use out of that. Fair enough. Fair enough. <laughs> you know, when they're in their fortress, that's also where we meet the baby Sun Eater that he's feeding, and uh, we we also have again another Silver Age the staple, the Superman robot, and. You know, we're not even talking people here, but my whole uh, George Bailey, It's a Wonderful Life thing, you know, uh, applies here as well. It's like, you know, when we get to the later parts in the story, we have this Sun Eater come to Superman's rescue against the Tyrant Sun, as do all of the robots, except the one who has to stay uh, stay behind to, you know, to maintain the, the fortress and the species that are alive there. So, again, just this idea of the these good, kind deeds that he performs for everyone and everything uh, throughout the story and how that that comes back around. And not that he does it for any repayment, but it's what he inspires in everyone around him. Uh, it's, it's, it's just a, a wonderful, uh, you know, representation of all of that. So I, the, you know, as far as Lois's uh, birthday and Atlas and Samson and, and their whole play for Lois's affections and, and all of that, 
I mean, the balls on these two guys where we find, you know, they challenge Superman to this contest, right? To win Lois's affections. And she's kind of annoyed with Superman for all this business about pretending to be Clark Kent. And so she kind of goes along with it. And this is where, again, the humanity where you see, you know, Superman pulls her aside. Like, why are you flirting with these guys? And he even says to one of them, he's like, I don't like you. He's like, I don't like you much. <laughs> Um, that's where, again, it's like, man, that's the, I feel like it's the Kansas in him coming out and I love it. But, you know, ultimately what we find out is that they stole, right, this radioactive net, uh, net, I was Netflix necklace from this, the Sphinx who's been chasing them across time and dimensions. And they lured it here because they knew they needed Superman's help. And this is where we get the question, the unanswerable question, one of his feats, uh, that he must account for. What happens when the unstoppable force meets the immovable object? And of course they surrender. I've always, you know, it's so funny, man. It's, it's been, you know, almost 20 years since these issues came out and, or at least yeah. the, since the first few issues came out. And uh, I, all, I, from time to time, not every day like you with Superman Beyond, but from time to time, I really do think of that, uh, that, that surrender uh, moment. As, it's such a great bit. But it's like right after that, they go back to challenging him. It's like, this guy just saved your asses. And I, I don't know. I mean, I, I guess they are jerks, right? And they deserve what they got when he shatters their arms in the arm wrestling contest. But it's just like, really? <laughs> I love that scene when he breaks their arms because it's the one time he acts really petty. And I, I think that's great because, you know, normally – He'll he'll put you back in jail, put you in the phantom zone. He'll do all of these things to make sure that you can't hurt yourself or someone else. But you flirt with his girlfriend when he is finally ready to make a significant commitment. He will break your arm. I don't care if you are Solomon or Atlas or, or again, the Kryptonian astronauts or whatever else. Don't mess with this woman. And I like that because not that she can't defend herself and not that she isn't completely capable of getting rid of these two idiots on her own, but he's mad, you know, and that's a very honest human emotion. He's mad and he's jealous and she knows it. And I love it. And, and, and I, I love that entire issue for that reason, that, that these two guys can do all of these amazing things. They can, you know, convince a reptilian army to invade Metropolis. They can fight the Ultra Sphinx. They can, they can, you know, they can do all of these things. But ultimately, at the end of the day, all they can think of is, well, how can we annoy him? Right? How can we bother him? How can we show him we're better than him? Superman doesn't spend one single second of his day even thinking about these guys. Um, and again, it goes back to what I was saying before, which is so many characters in these 12 issues are poor reflections of Superman to show what Superman isn't. And I, I love the uh, way they describe what they're going to do to win Lois's affections because it's all feats of strength. They're going to make diamonds and they're going to make people bow and they're going to do everything. They're talking to a woman who for the day is stronger than both of them and they can't even see that. And that's the point. Clark didn't give her powers because, you know, from some selfish reason, he gave her powers because he thought she might enjoy herself. And she does because he knows her really well, probably better than anyone else alive. Um, and that's kind of the point. It's like, yeah, she's going to flirt with the two meatheads, 
because it's going to make him angry and he almost never gets angry. He gets angry enough to break both of their arms and, you know, send them on their merry way. And I think that's a great scene because it, it goes back to what I was saying, which is like, yeah, he's got all the highest ideals in the world, but at the end of the day, he loves Lois full stop. Full stop. It's not just this, the feats of strength though, Mike, don't forget the time travel aspect. They promise her drinks at the crucifixion. Haven't you always wanted that? oh yeah i i think uh i think jerry siegel and joe schuster would have really uh you know appreciated uh their characters having drinks at the crucifixion whatever that means so if it's cool with you i I would love to jump to because we talked about the jimmy issue we talked about the lex issue um i you know i know we didn't pour over every page and every panel but Mm -hmm. i think we've hit probably the the you know the most uh, resonant pieces of those issues uh, the Smallville issue where, you know, it's it's unclear at the outset exactly what's going on here. Is this just a flashback issue? And then, of course, you realize the time travel component that these new farmhands uh, who have come on to work at the Kent Farm are actually the time traveling Superman squad there to combat the chronovore and that the bandaged unknown Superman I'm not even a Superman, but this bandaged uh, farmhand uh, is actually our our Superman and that this has allowed him the opportunity to have the goodbye with Jonathan Kent that he was robbed of at the time because he was busy as Superboy trying to fight the chronovore. A couple of things I've said many times, and uh, we we are getting into a, we will get to a big Superboy exploration on this podcast probably next year, but I swear it's coming. I, still though, Superboy, crypto, these are aspects that still remain a little bit tough for me. I, I they don't line up again with, with necessarily my vision of the character. I don't have that childhood attachment or anything like that. But again, I can take a step back and I can look at if you are, it's such a big part of the character's history, publishing history, right? So to tell an all-star story, it's like, yeah, it, it's it's fitting to have time as Superboy with crypto represented there. So uh, I'm on board with that. And of course, you know, I'm always, I always feel at home in, in Smallville. I love the scene with Clark, Lana and, and Pete at the diner. And after Clark leaves, uh, Lana says to Pete, like, are you, are you guys just like, how can you expect me to pretend like, I don't know who he is? Which I thought that was, I thought that was great. I love that moment. Yeah. 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 No, that was my favorite moment in the issue. Because again, it goes back to what I was saying about Jimmy, like Superman protects everyone. Absolutely everyone, but there are people who protect Clark. And if you know Clark, and again, you're not the world's greatest investigative reporter or you know the smartest man who's ever lived, you very quickly see like, wait, well, you're the same person. Like you're my best friend, and the guy who just saved the milk truck or whatever it is, the Superboy gets up to day to day. You're clearly you're clearly the same person. Like you don't want to tell me that, so I'm going to respect that for you. But yeah, the idea that. Um, Pete and Lana knew these things that perfectly lines up with my understanding because, um, you know, they're there at the outset. They're the original apostles, right? They're, they're there as he's figuring out, well, I have the strength, um, and I have the values, but what am I going to do with those? And what am I going to do with those in a way that, um, would help people and would make those that I already have in my life proud of me because again i i think you know why does he become superman well at the end of the day martha and jonathan tell him it's a good idea to do so i, I mean that's that's really what it comes down to it's like you know uh, i forget if it's in this comic or some other one where it's like martha kent clips every article 
of Superman ever. And she's got the whole storm cellar is just filled with this. And I love that because it's like, this guy saves the world on a daily basis and she gets every newspaper and she clips everything because she couldn't be more proud of her son doing all of these things. Uh, and I, I really like that because it proves that Clark is incredibly human and these people are endeared to him. And I just, again, it's, it's a little thing and it's a quick thing, but again, uh, a small act of humanity is what ultimately saves the day. To go back to your earlier point, Cal Kent says, well, if Lana hadn't taken this picture, AKA if she hadn't cared about you as a person, not as a super person, we wouldn't have been able to come back and save the day and give you a couple of seconds with your dad. So, uh, it's perfect. It really, really is. It's 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 a flawless uh, issue. For me, it's it's only surpassed by issue ten, but it's 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 damn good comics. Yeah, it's it's absolutely terrific. It's probably my favorite uh, issue of of the series, I would say. And look, as the Smallville series finale taught us, it was his time in Smallville with Jonathan and Martha Kent and all the people there that made him a hero. And I have to say the. The pan, I, the eulogy really gets me, and I talked about that before. But it's the panel, the one panel that I it I tear up every time when uh, Jonathan is standing out in that field with the bandaged farmhand, which is our present day Superman, and he just says, you know, and I guess if you were reading this maybe more literally he could have been talking about Clark, you know, kind of deciding what path to follow, you know, more immediately, you know, we get. You get some, some information about Jonathan and Martha. Martha wants to go back to um, live in the town and manage the general store. But I think the, the the true meaning of this exchange is, you know, Jonathan knows that it's his time, right? And I think yeah. has some sense, maybe not that the bandaged man is literally his son from the future, but has some sense that there's something more uh, about him. And so it's really a much bigger question when he says, he'll be okay, won't he, the boy? And, and, and of course, Superman says, you know, it all, it all turns out right in the end, but it's just like, and I know, you know, as, as a dad, it's like, the, if that's all you would need to know, right? Like if, yeah. you know, you, you knew that were it though, that's the only question it's like, and if, you know, your kid is all right, it's, it's okay. So, ah, I love that. I love that scene so much. It's, I, again, that, that's why, and, 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 you know, great respect for the late Dwayne McDuffie. And I don't mean to, you know, dump on the animated movie, but <laughs> And I, you know, I actually, there are, you know, you expressed this earlier and I, a few people who I've heard from have said that the animated movie kind of unlocked a lot of this for them and made them fans of it. So I, I, it definitely has value. And also in fairness to Dwayne McDuffie, this, this is not a story built designed for a three act movie. Like, I think that's ultimately the problem with adapting this, um, which is, you know, to Morrison's credit, like they told a story made for, for the medium of comics, right? Um, it, it is always so funny to me, though, when it, this comes up when we talk about Death of Superman and it comes up now, these these stories, though these two in particular, that seem tailor-made for an episodic approach. <laughs> They're always adapted in movie form. It's like they don't you know, they, some worked, you know, to, to, to a greater degree than others, but it's like, I don't feel like that's necessarily the best vehicle for them. So I think that's ultimately, that's a, probably the biggest problem that I had with the movie was just like, this wasn't made to be a movie. It doesn't have the the flow or the structure or the pacing of it. And, you know, so ultimately what you get is, is 
uh, again, largely a direct translation with a lot of omission. So it's, um, I, I think ultimately it's a good way to see the comic, you know, brought to life. But um, I, yeah, I, I, I don't know. I, I don't, I don't know how often I would really revisit the, the movie. I would definitely continue to go back to the comic. So. Yeah, it, it's, it's not, um, All-Star Superman is like Watchmen. It was made to be a comic first, and it was never, um, as far as I know, it wasn't designed with adaptation in mind. Uh, All Star really plays to the uh, episodic format of the issues. I mean, in characters and arcs are introduced uh, that are gone by the end of the issue, and that's fine because the narrative thread uh, is picked up and and things build on themselves. But again, you you can read the, the parasite in prison scene. Um, or the two issues with the bizarre world on their own, like things continue and move on, but ultimately those are the adventures of Superman. Um, again, I, I just go back to McDuffie uh, saying, this thing wasn't meant to be adapted, but I love it, so I'm going to do my best. And since it was Dwayne McDuffie, who's, you know, again, was a legend before he even wrote this thing, uh, he does an amazing job. And what he has to change to fit a 90 minute structure is, you know, to try to make it uh, a single episode and, and, you know, would I love to watch an all-star Superman show? Yes, that would be great. Please make that HBO max. Um, But, you know, if we just have that movie, then that's good too. Very recently, uh, just days before this recording, uh, new co-head of DC Films, James Gunn, posted an image of himself, uh, or not of himself, but of uh, All-Star Superman next to his cup of coffee, fueling speculation about what uh, what he has in mind for the Superman movie he's writing. So, uh, well, But again, we're still in the realm of movies, but you know, we'll, we'll, we'll see. I think there's uh, uh, people we might be getting ahead of ourselves a little bit here, but you never know. And, and maybe even if it's not a literal uh, translation or adaptation, uh, maybe aspects of it will, uh, will will inspire the movie. So we'll see. The You know, way yeah. back in the day before the movie had actually come out, I was very excited for Man of Steel because the trailer uh, takes Jor-El's speech that Jor-El is able to give to his son in this very comic. And I thought, well, that's a really good sign because that's one of the best, uh, I don't know, monologues, pieces of dialogue, what have you of him. Uh, you know, they will follow you into the sun is, 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 is poetry. Uh, and hearing that in the man of steel trailer way, way back in the day, uh, did make me very excited for that movie. So, so yeah, I, I think that people who want to make, uh, movies of Superman since this thing has come out, you know, they clearly read it. We're jumping ahead, but that 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 whole sequence where you know Superman's essentially having a near death experience, right? The the equivalent of that, and sees Jor El, and but it's so Morrison where it's this, all this business about you know uh, you know energy can't be created or destroyed, so it's like you're uh, you're you know you're you're being converted into this radio consciousness or however it's described, but yeah. you know it 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 has that great effect and it allows for that moment between them and and yes that very powerful line, it's I I, I love the way it's delivered and presented in in Man of Steel and that's that's always what I hear in in my head so I do gravitate towards that although I appreciate the you know it's it's origin in the comic here but even before that when Jorel says you showed them the face of the Man of Tomorrow. Uh, you know, it's, it's such a great line and, and that whole sequence. But 
you know, kind of jumping back to the uh, where, where we left off here and going back to the animated movie. So the animated movie entirely skips the bizarro, the bizarro sequence. Um, and I actually do think very cleverly, if I remember correctly, right, it's Superman going off to, uh, to, with Candor, right? And then, and then there's a big break and then he returns as opposed to here where he's off world for a while on Bizarro world, right? After the Bizarros attack earth in, uh, in issue seven and then issue eight, he's off on Bizarro world. What, I, you know, I, I'm not the biggest Bizarro fan. I like a certain flavor of Bizarro. I don't quite love the whole bizarro world aspect necessarily, uh, but I enjoyed this for what it was. What, what, what did you think about the bizarro bizarro detour? I hate bizarro speech. I hated it in the Silver Age. I hate it in the Modern Age. I hated it in this. I, I don't get it. I don't find it appealing. The joke wears very thin very quickly. Um, I love bizarro world here because I love the idea that. Um, Bizarro world is the macro organism and it's hunting earth and the bizarros are just its amoebas, small life forms that are forming on it, including uh, Superman and including Lois and including all the other characters because that's what it's seeing on earth. Uh, and it's a dumb primitive organism from a less complicated, a less complex version of the universe. They, they refer to it as the underverse. So it doesn't understand that that's not going to work, but it's trying it anyway. I, I think that's great. I think that's a high concept. Um, I also like that Bizarro here is tied into the Bizarro drones that Quintum is creating in the issue one. Um, I like, again, you know, I said that Superman... Uh, analogs and duplicates and other versions are all throughout this thing. Bizarro is the original version of that. You know, back in the Silver Age, uh, Lex Luthor attempted to create his own version of Superman, but when he did, he created Bizarro instead, who isn't able to be controlled, even though he has all Superman's powers. Um, and uh, I, I thought that that was fun here, where Leo, the smartest person alive, I guess except for Lex, can't clone Superman. And he tries and he tries and he tries and all he comes up with is these bizarros who can be set to a specific purpose, but they're not Superman. Um, and, and it's the same way on Bizarro World, where you know you can create a version of Superman who has his strength and who does all these other things, but they're not him, and we're going to show you why. Uh, but my favorite thing about that arc by far is Zabaro, which is an original creation, and the idea being, well, if Bizarro is you know superman over a certain access uh access access well whatever it is um Zabaro is bizarro reflected back over that same access but it's a copy of a copy of a copy and what you get is this like i always think of him as a neil gaiman-esque person because he asked superman to read his poetry and that just seems like something that would have happened in the old vertigo sandman book um but i love him because he's so dour and he's so ridiculous and uh he's got this this off red costume and all he wants is superman to to say yes you have it so bad while superman is sweating and dying and going through all these other things and i 
I thought the character was great. And even at his absolutely lowest ebb, Superman is still trying to make this guy feel a little bit better about things because there is no one in existence uh, other than Superman who knows what it feels like to be alone in the world. Even if you do have friends, uh, they still can't understand everything you go through. So I, I really enjoyed those, those two parts, but I was also happy not to have them in the movie because again, every time one of these characters has to speak, it's just like, please, please stop it. We get it. We get the joke. They say things backwards. Okay, great. Stop it. I'm not even reading the dialogue at this point. I'm skipping over it. Uh, I'm with you. Uh, just as a side note, my water heater is going off right now. So if you hear a little background noise, that's what it is. It'll kick off in a couple of minutes. But uh, wonderful assessment of the Bizarro, uh, the Bizarro detour. I, it's so funny because every time Bizarro comes up, I talk about how I don't like the Bizarro speak. And, and I've only ever had people share a similar sentiment. So like, if there's anyone out there who loves this backwards speak, please let me know. Because it's one of these things where it's like, would people please just drop this? It's so annoying. It's so annoying to read. Uh, but I agree. Zabaro was great. He, here's, here's again, where it, like Silver Age and Morrison just, I feel like it's like peanut butter and chocolate. Because I'm reading and I'm saying to myself, look, my, my Silver Age knowledge is, is, has grown, but it's still limited. And I'm like, oh, this must be some kind of Silver Age pull, Right. That that you know Morrison dusted off or something like that, but I know this the original for this, but it, like it totally makes sense either way as a wholly original Morrison creation. Yep, that absolutely tracks. But if this had been something out of the Silver Age that that Morrison uh, drew from, that would make sense too. I can't. I wish I could take credit for this, but I think credit goes to Adam talking Superman on Twitter. I think he had posted this this whole idea again about. Uh, you know, Superman, I, I think the way Adam actually put it was Superman going through the five stages of grief over his uh, impending doom and how, you know, this really represents the depression stage. Like he's trapped in the underverse. It's like the crushing weight of this. Um, I mean, literally, he can't leave the planet, but, you know, emotionally, spiritually, in terms of uh, what he's what he's going through and, and the struggle over over his demise uh, that, you know, this is a, a manifestation of that, which I thought uh, was, was, a, was a really, I wish I had thought of that. <laughs> but I read that, I was like, yeah, that actually is, is really brilliant. You know? Is that something that you had thought about at all? Uh, yeah, I, I, I think of, um, I think of the bizarro world as, uh, you know, kind of a stand-in for, for hell, for depression, for these ideas of, you don't want to be here. You are here. How do we get out? Um, but for Superman, it's, it's particularly bad because again, it's, it's bizarro world. Like it's a world built around the idea that, well, these guys love bizarro as much as humans love you. Uh, except this world is, is terrible and awful and no one here is going to be able to help you get what you want. So I, I really did enjoy that, but I also love the idea of a Superman story built around uh, Superman having to escape a dying world because I really thought that that put him in Jor-El's shoes. So I love all the scenes where he's trying to convince the Bizarros to assemble a rocket in time um, and, and, you know, doing his best to make sure Zabaro doesn't drop the ball and knowing he has to get on this, knowing he has to escape. And it's just this, you know, it's this weird inversion of what his father had to go through where no one was listening and no one was going to help him. And, and, and there was only one person who understood how important that was. And it's either Jarrell or Superman, depending on the version of the story. So yeah, I, I thought it was a great way to externalize what Clark must have been going through, which is just this, this abject loneliness. Um, but again, yeah, please, 
no more bizarro speak guys, please. I'm begging you. Yeah, for real. Uh, I, I thought it was such a great touch when Superman returns to earth that he lands near, uh, like a carnival, right. You know, given the old circus yeah. strongman uh, origins of, of, of his look back in the thirties, I thought that was such a nice nod. And of course, a lot of time has passed. My water heater has kicked off. So that's great. And he, you know, he, he flies back to Metropolis and he, you know, these, these lost Kryptonian astronauts have, have you know, set themselves up here on earth and, we and Superman quickly realize that, uh, you know, their intentions for earth are not as, as, as warm, uh, or benign as Superman's, um, are. And again, this is just another example, I think of how his, the kindness prevails, right? Because they are so, they're cruel and they're so dismissive of him. Right. And they look at this as the site for new Krypton. I mean, you know, again, talking about the tropes that, that Morrison plays, I mean, this idea of, Maybe with the exception of Candor, which we'll get to in the next issue, it's like typically when Kryptonians show up, <laughs> uh, you know, from Phantom Zone or otherwise, uh, regardless of how initially good they might seem, uh, you know, inevitably it goes wrong for all the reasons we've always talked about, right? The What makes Superman who he is is, of course, his upbringing and the, and the humanity. and um, But so I think to get... Uh, an aspect of that represented here, I thought was, was great and very fitting. And, but also I think a good payoff because it's not just that he defeats them, right? They're ultimately exposed to some, you know, kryptonite cloud, right? In space or something like that. And, and they're dying. Um, and he shows them kindness and they, and they appreciate that and kind of see the light, right? And are proud to call him kin, um, despite yeah. the way they had treated him previously. And they even get their moment of redemption where he's like, you know, they agree to be sent into the phantom zone and, yeah. you know, Superman even says like, all right, at least I know there'll be some law and order there. And the last shot of yeah. him, like ready to, you know, ready to crack some heads in the phantom zone, I thought was, was such a nice, was such a nice payoff and an, and an arc and very quick, but effective. I thought. I like knowing that uh, everyone on Krypton was a dick. I don't think that gets talked about enough, but uh, you know, these people said Jor-El, you know, Jor-El is, is the Lex Luthor or the Leo Quintum of Krypton, right? He's the smartest guy who's ever lived. He's six generations smarter than everyone else. And he's telling you like the giant red sun in the sky is going to destabilize us. And we're not going to be here very much longer. And everyone's like, nah, nah. Uh, so, you know, he has to act and, uh, you know, every time we've seen um, other Kryptonians, to your point, you know, they never land very well. Things always come up with friction. So I love the idea that these two would have been regarded as, as superheroes, right? They were the first astronauts. They were legendary. They were, uh, you know, Lilo and Barrel. They were they were great, good model Kryptonians. <laughs> they only have to be on Earth for like. 12 hours before they become fascists. And I, I think that's really interesting because it says, well, you know, Clark, maybe you're happy you didn't necessarily grow up there. You definitely would have been um, an outsider from a house of outsiders. And, and, and goodness only knows how that would have turned out. So I thought that was, that was great here because, you know, Clark being raised on Earth is why they survive. Because to your point, he constantly looks for a chance to have empathy with other people. And again, you know, if they can survive and they can live here, um, 
they could replace him. They could help him. They could continue the good work. Uh, they could do all of these things to say nothing of the fact that they were raised on Krypton. They probably have cures for cancer. We're not going to discover for, for who knows how much longer uh, buried in whatever spacecraft brought them here. So, you know, Clark is immediately excited by this. But again, you know, there's a reason Krypton's not here anymore. It, it, it fell. It wasn't ready to save itself. And uh, the astronauts are a really good example of that. But yeah, to your point, that last scene where they're like, oh, we were given a second chance. Well, you can bet we're not going to waste it. And please, please, please give me a miniseries where these two are dealing with Zod and Valor and all the other characters trapped in there. Please. Uh, Steve Gerber, the late great Steve Gerber, wrote a miniseries about the Phantom Zone criminals long ago, and it's one of my favorite Superman stories. And if someone wants to revisit that with these two characters added in, I would happily buy it. Yeah, same here. I think that would be awesome. But yeah, I mean, and just another example of of the his, you know, seemingly infinite patience and kindness and, and willing to give people a chance. And, you know, even going back to Lex, it's like, there's never really any animosity on the part of Superman, right, towards him. And it's always, as both Clark and Superman, but especially as Clark, like, seemingly at this genuine attempt to try understand. I mean, you know, there's that moment, and I'm, I'm going back here, but when, you know, Clark says to Lex, he's like basically pleading with him. He's like, you guys could have been friends. Uh, you know, yeah. uh, again, I think just a lot of great examples of showing, you know, what what Superman, what he sees in people. and, and But again, more importantly, what it what it inspires. So, yeah, well, it goes back to what you said about the line about the deep psychology, you know, uh, Lex can't imagine having, uh, omnipotence and being that from his perspective, ineffectual with it, not just doing whatever it is you thought was best, uh, regardless of the consequences. Well, it's the same for Superman. Superman can't wrap his head around someone whose entire life is defined by hatred to him that's a waste uh, and especially if you're lex someone who could do whatever they chose to do whatever they set their mind to and superman is is constantly trying to understand this like why do you hate like this what is it about the way you live your life that couldn't be fixed by just helping me or not being a dick <laughs> like all of these things and it's these two guys who really can't get to where the other person is because they're both missing a fundamental component. Lex can't understand that Superman is all good. And, you know, Superman can't understand that this guy just doesn't believe in him, doesn't trust him, doesn't think that he's real, thinks he must be lying. So these two guys are constantly looking at each other like, what the hell is wrong with you? And again, it's not until the end where they're both on equal footing where they're like, oh, now I get it. But uh, again, it's a great arc. And it, look, any any Superman Lex story that whether Superman loses his powers or Lex gains them, where they can actually have a physical confrontation, I'm, I'm always I'm always down for uh, when a, when a, when a true punch can be thrown. Uh, some of my favorite yeah. Smallville moments. So, uh, you know, we're we're at a, one of the final issues here, number ten, the last Will and Testament uh, issue, which I know is a favorite of yours and of mine as well, and. You know, I love the structure of this where, you know, you're you're following Superman. You know, we're cutting back and forth, but we're kind of following him on his day where, you know, the end is drawing down and and he's uh, not not rushing through his to-do list, but you see him, you know, you kind of see him taking these steps, finding a home for Candor, right? Or with the assistance of Leo Quintum, this idea of yeah. of 
you know, releasing the city still miniaturized, but on Mars where they'll have their own space, but they'll have the power of the sun. And, uh, yeah, you know, I, I just think such a great payoff to this, you know, talk about unanswerable questions. Like, what do you do with Candor? <laughs> and, uh, I, I, I liked, I did like that outcome. And, you know, you mentioned a minute ago about, you know, the Kryptonians could probably cure disease. Well, through, you know, Superman, uh, you know, th- through Superman's benevolence, that's what happens, right? So this whole issue where the the Kandorians are in Superman's bloodstream trying to stop this solar radiation poisoning, ultimately they're unable to. But Superman knew that all along, right? But they made him feel well enough to go about his his business of the day. But he has the idea that this application, what they were trying to do for him, while it might not have worked on for this condition, for his physiology, that they probably could eradicate any and all human diseases. So as far as, you know, it's, maybe this is something that totally jumps out at people and really makes an impression. I, I, I don't know, in my past readings, for whatever reason, it didn't, it didn't smack me in the face the way that it did now, where it's like, he cures disease. It's incredible. This, this issue is perfect. This is the best issue of the entire series. This is one of my favorite comic books of all time. This might be one of the best comic books of all time. Um, yeah, and and the one thing you didn't mention that I love most of all is he stands before the infant universe uh, containing Earth Q, and he says, "Well, I have to see what a world would be like without me because I'm afraid that once I go away, um, humanity is not going to be able to survive on its own. So I need to see if it's possible." Um, that they would. So what does he do? He creates life. Well, the life is us. It's the world of the reader. Uh, Earth Q is, is us. It's a world without superhumans. It's a world that exists, um, you know, wrapped around the fictional world. And, and you see spursed throughout this issue, what are Jerry Siegel and Joe Schuster going about the process of creating Superman? And, and you see the beginnings of art and culture on random panels featuring Aborigine characters. And it's the evolution of this idea of Superman being the, the ultimate example of art. We didn't just make him in a vacuum. He is uh, the development of all these things. And I think what Morrison is trying to say here is in a world without Superman, in a world without superhumans, in a world without that potential we still need him so what do we do we create him as a fictional character and in this story that same fictional character created us and it's talking again just like in final crisis about the relationship between the reader and the fiction and the consummation and how even though it's fiction and it doesn't exist it does because it has an effect on you and you take it with you whether you're me and you're thinking about superman beyond every day or uh, you know, you go back to the most powerful panel in this entire series, which is Reagan on the ledge, which is constantly cited by people who say this page saved lives. This is very simple. This is a fictional character saving a life by explaining to a young woman, your doctor was late. I'm sorry. I had to fight a robot aboard a train. It was uh, completely out of your control, but I'm here now. And uh, he hugs her. And she doesn't die, and that's beautiful. And uh, yeah, it's so great. And then yeah, to to have an issue that ends with <laughs> Superman deciding that, well, what's the best use of Candor? 
well, you're going to cho- you're going to cure childhood cancer. It's like, yeah, that's a Superman story I want to read. It's it's not self-indulgent. It's not him standing on a on a mountain and saying I've cured all disease. It's very specific. It's saying these are children. They haven't had a chance yet. I'm going to take the the Kandorians who want to do this and I'm going to let them do this and I'm going to see what happens. And it's it's this beautiful thing of hope. It's this beautiful idea that we're given and that final panel on the final page of uh, of Joe Schuster drawing the Golden Age Superman just chokes me up every time. I I love this comic. I really do. I, I wish I had a stack of these things. I would just hand it to everyone that I saw on the street. Like this, this is every single thing I have wanted from this lifelong hobby. It it really is tremendous. And yes, that panel, that page with. With the jumper on the roof uh, is, is something that you see a lot, and and rightfully so. This uh, this notion of it's never as bad as it seems, and you're stronger than you think you are. It's such a you know for for all that he can do with his abilities, right? It's the the words and just being there, and the fact that he's there for her. Yeah. In, in that instant, just as he was there for that mission to to Mars to Bizarre, whatever the whatever the situation is, right? He's there to help. Um, it's it is it's so powerful, and it wasn't until probably this last reading where it even dawned on me that when he's when he's receives that message from the future, it's the descendant of Reagan warning him about yeah. Solaris, which again that was yeah. lost on me the first time through that future speak, but uh, again. George Bailey of it all, of these acts of kindness coming back around uh, in, in a really beautiful way. Uh, you know, this issue in particular, uh, this entire series, you know, this notion of Superman dealing with his mortality. So the entire series, but especially this issue, yeah, there are a couple of Silver Age stories, The Last Days of Superman, where he thinks he's dying from a Kryptonian virus, uh, and he kind of makes his to-do list. Uh, it reminded me of that. Um, and then also the Superman, Silver Age, Superman Red, Superman Blue story where the Kandorians are basically like, hey, you suck. You never got us out of this bottle. What are you going to do about it? And so he <laughs> conducts this experiment on himself to enhance his intelligence. He splits himself in two. But now that there are two Superman, both with super intelligence, he's able to solve all these problems, uh, including restoring candor to its original size, bringing Krypton back. It's it's uh, it, it's really a whole thing. One of them lives on Krypton with Lois. The other one lives on Earth with Lana. It's it's a whole thing. But uh, again, I have to imagine that those stories were at least somewhat an inspiration for for Morris, and obviously played here for far more dramatic effect. But you know, you see the echoes of those stories, and I really think that's cool. And to you, to you, you you encapsulated it beautifully. I don't have much more to add about the the pocket universe he creates, other than yeah, just that this idea that, right, you said in a world where there's no Superman, we create one. Like the idea of Superman and what Superman represents is so undeniable. I also love, and maybe this kind of brings it full circle because I know, you know, we've already talked about a lot of the end of the stories, fight with Solaris, the Sun Eater and the robots coming to his defense, the final confrontation with Lex, the farewell to Lois flying into the sun, that final shot of him, uh, <laughs> working the gears or whatever it is he's doing in the heart of the sun, the final tease that there's there's a future generation of Superman to come. But in a lot of ways, bringing this full circle, um, when he's making his last will and testament, what he leaves to Clark Kent is the headline, right, of Superman's death. And he says to Clark Kent, who never let me forget what it feels like to be an ordinary downtrodden man. And I- I- I'm with you. I've never liked... Certainly, I don't. I never ascribe to the Kill Bill speech, 
but but even and I've talked about this, right? I I, I do bristle against the as much as I love the Christopher Reeve performance like that, you know, really that bumbling caricature of the character, the the Clark Kent who's purely purely a disguise, right? Um, but again, in this context, I, I I think it works, and I just I liked that articulation from Superman about what Clark Kent has allowed him to do and to experience and that, you know, Clark gets his due, you know, in that moment. And then again, even later when he stands up to Lex in the daily planet, it's like even Clark has his moment in all of this. So I, I, I just, it, it, it really, it just, it worked for me in so many ways. Yeah. I, I do like that Superman is self-aware of, of it. I, I think that's important too, because again, he could have chosen any identity he wanted. Um, you know, he designed this version of Clark, not the version, you know, he grew up with, but but this version of him. And he could have very well designed one that Lois would have been more interested in, but he didn't. He designed this one specifically so that he could live um, the, the kind of the other side of things. He lets Steve Lombard play pranks on him and do all this other like weird sitcom-y stuff. Um, and he never takes his revenge on him. It's not like with Atlas and the other one. Mm, he does light uh, Steve's toupee on fire, so he, <laughs> he does do that. He does. He does light Steve's toupee on fire. He does. He he. You know he he gets it. He gets it where uh, where he can. And and you know I'd love to read the story where Steve really does realize like you were you were messing with Superman. Like he wasn't. Uh, you know. He was playing along. He was in on the joke, basically. So uh, I, I I do think that's important. And I, I like the fact that he's self-aware about it because I, I do think it's really interesting. Um, but, you know, it also begs the question of when he is Superman and when he's actively not being Clark, well, how much of that is also an act? Because if, you know, Clark Kent was raised on a farm and his parents know him as one thing and Lana and... Um, um, Pete know him as one thing, you know, when he decides to go off into the world, he almost bifurcates that personality and Superman becomes stronger and more dedicated and more stoic, uh, to borrow your word. And then Clark becomes more mundane and more, um, unnoticeable and, and, and everything else. So it's, it's kind of a sacrifice he makes because he knows he's going to need that. He's going to need that tether. So, I mean, it's not my favorite aspect of the character, but again, it's certainly not done poorly and and i do like the fact that it's acknowledged here because uh you know he he knows what he's doing it's 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 not just a narrative conceit the character knows what he's doing i i think that's the thing where um i I can get on board with this because there's more meaning behind it and it serves a purpose both for what we just talked about and also what we talked about earlier that you know even in these acts of clumsiness he's he's helping people right so Uh, but yeah, I think for the, the, the perspective that it gives him, uh, it's, uh, I, I, I really enjoyed that moment and, and kind of giving Clark his due and all of this. We've been going for over two hours. We've covered a lot. I know we could, I'm sure we could, there's always more to say about all-star Superman. The, I'll toss, I will you know, give you the, the final word on whatever else you want to share. I will just say this, especially for anyone who, it, it, maybe you never read it. Or um, maybe you did and it didn't connect with you fully the way it didn't fully connect with me initially. Uh, I would just say take another look at it, kind of keeping in mind that, that, it, that it is this encapsulation of, of the larger mythology and it, and it weaves in aspects from so many different eras and, 
and plays with a lot of the tropes. So again, at least I know that was one of the things that that hindered my enjoyment initially uh, was was the the use of aspects or dynamics that weren't necessarily part of my ideal version or my preferred version. So kind of keeping in mind what the what the, what the mandate of the story is, I guess, in this all star line of of really encapsulating the the bigger picture. But then also, I think you know we we cited so many instances of of the character's humanity and 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 again I'm not trying to project my experience onto any maybe that's not something that people wrestled with but for me that was definitely one of those things seeing him more as this detached god in the story and now after all the times I've read it and thinking about it and the conversation we had it's like you see so much of the person he is coming through all of this so again my perspective has changed a lot for anyone who hasn't read it I, 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 it's definitely worth revisiting. Um, I, you know, previously would I have included this in my list of top stories, like personal favorites? I don't know, probably not, but I, I do now. So, uh, what, what else would you like to say before we sign off? Uh, the only other thing I, I want to talk about is, uh, in issue 12, Lex's moment of realization. Um, it's, it's great, you know, read issue 12, watch the movie, do everything else. Um, but but there there's a specific scene uh, that always stuck with me. I'm not even sure why. Um, once Lex realizes the full scope of Superman's abilities in the sense of what he can perceive. Again, earlier in the series, Lois talks about hearing stars and songs and seeing things. It's it's not just a question of how strong and durable Superman is. It's perception. Um, and Lex is a scientist. He talks throughout the entire series about how he worships uh, science and uh, um, um, reason and, 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 and being rational and all these other things. He, he pushes the priest away uh, when he's in the electric chair because he says, you stink of the irrational, which is, of course, an overblown reaction to this idea of, I am a man of science. I can measure things and look at things and, and whatever else. And um, when the moment finally hits that he has a full awareness of the super senses, uh, his mind immediately goes to work on answering a question, which is how do the fundamental forces of the universe mesh and work together, which is something he's never been able to answer. No one's ever been able to answer. And the answer given here, Lex says with tears in his eyes as he turns to his niece, nasty Luthor, he says it's, it's all thought control. And he says it's it's consciousness, it's us, you know. Um, this is how he, Superman, sees all the time every day. Um, it's all just us in here together. And then very quietly he says, and we've all, we are all we've got. And I feel like that's the most powerful line in the entire thing. Because you keep saying, you know, Superman is kind uh, and he helps everyone no matter what. And yeah, he does do that because that's the way he was raised. But what Lex realizes is that Superman also knows for a fact, no questions asked, that that is the only thing that matters. Helping people and doing everything is the fundamental nature of the, of the universe they live in. Um, and I think that's an incredibly 
powerful thing because it allows Lex to answer that fundamental question of why does a guy with omnipotence not do what I would do? The answer is, well, you couldn't see things from his perspective, and now you can. And now when you understand the answer to your question and see that it also answers the question of why you couldn't see things from this guy's perspective, it changes everything. And again, if you go back to the animated movie and you think that once Lex wakes up from the beating he receives from poisoning the freaking sun, um, he decides to try to give this to as many people as possible and handing the book to Leo. Uh, in the scene where he hands it to Leo, he actually quotes the eight-word origin to him, meaning that in the animated universe, it's Lex who writes that down. And again, I love the idea that Lex experiences this, answers his own questions, learns something about not only his enemy, but himself, and decides to share that with everyone else. I, I think it's beautiful. Beautiful and beautifully said. Thank you for your, you know, your, your insight into the story. It was really great to have this discussion. And, and again, to consider this right after whatever happened to the man of tomorrow, where it's really funny because you look at both stories and, especially when you look at all-star in conjunction with 1 million, you know, both give us these final Superman stories that end with Superman and Lois together. We have a wink. We have uh, a progeny. We have <laughs> generations to come, right? But they unfold in different ways. But I would say that, again, I think the the version we get here is is very fitting for this particular story, for Morrison's version of the character. You know, he comes from the stars. He returns to the sun after showing people the face of the man of tomorrow. It's it's really, uh, I, again, this is why I waited until now to do this episode, because I, I don't know, my, my take, my perspective would have been a lot different, would have been a lot more limited, uh, would not have been as glowing uh, if we had done this at episode four. So that's why we did this now, and it's been uh, an absolute blast to have this conversation. So, uh, you know, Mike, thank you again for joining me for this audience Thank you, as always. I, this was a long one. I mean, we're no stranger to long episodes, but uh, we've we've been generally under two hours, I think, for the most part for a while. So, but this this one deserved it. So, thank you for joining us. We will be back next week. Next time, I'm going to be joined by Tyler Patrick from the Krypton Report podcast, and we're going to be talking about for the man who has everything. So, make sure you come back and join us uh, for that episode in one week. As always, it's about what you do. It's about action. This show is part of the Flat Squirrel Podcast Network, home to Digging for Kryptonite, another exciting episode in The Adventures of Superman, Summoning the Zords, and My Comic Shop History, available wherever you get your podcasts. Be sure to subscribe and leave a review today. Sign up at patreon.com slash anthonydesiato for additional content. Thank you all.